0: Welcome to the Huberman Lab Podcast, where we discuss science and science-based tools for everyday life. I'm Andrew Huberman, and I'm a professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology at Stanford School of Medicine. Today, my guest is Dr. Noam Sobel. Dr. Noam Sobel is a professor of neurobiology in the Department of Brain Sciences at the Weizmann Institute of Science. His laboratory studies olfaction and chemosensation. Olfaction is, of course, our sense of smell. Chemosensation is our ability to respond to chemicals in our environment. Today, you are going to learn some absolutely incredible facts about how you interact with the world and other people around you. For instance, you will learn that humans can smell things around them as well as dogs can. In fact, humans are incredibly good at sensing the chemical world around them. You also learn, for instance, that every time you meet somebody, you are taking chemicals from that person, either from the chemical cloud that surrounds them or directly from the surface of their body, and you are actually applying it to your own body and you are processing information about that person's chemicals to determine many things about them, including how stressed they are, their hormone levels, things that operate at a subconscious level on your brain and nervous system, and that impact your emotions, your decision-making, and who you choose to relate to or not to relate to. You will also learn that tears, yes, the tears of others, are impacting your hormone levels in powerful ways. You will also learn that every so often, actually on a regular schedule, there is an alternation of ease through which you can breathe through one nostril or the other. And that alternation reflects an underlying dynamic of your nervous system and has a lot to do with how alert or sleepy you happen to be. The list of things that Dr. Noam Sobel's laboratory has discovered that relate to everyday life and that are going to make you say, wow, I can't believe that happens, but then go out into the real world and actually observe that that happens in ways that are incredibly interesting, just goes on and on. In fact, his laboratory discovered that we are always sensing our own odors. That's right. Even though you might not notice your own smell, you are always sensing your own odor cloud. And throughout the day, you periodically smell yourself deliberately even though you might not realize it, in order to change your cognition and behavior. I first learned of Dr. Sobel's laboratory through a rather odd observance. That observance took place when I was a graduate student many years ago at UC Berkeley. At the time, Noam Sobel was a professor at UC Berkeley. As I mentioned before, he has since moved to the Weisman. Well, I was walking through the Berkeley campus and I saw people on their hands and knees, but with their head very close to the ground and their eyes were covered, their hands were covered, their mouths were covered, and only their nose was exposed. And what I was observing was an experiment being conducted by the Sobel Laboratory in which humans were following a scent trail. That scent trail was actually buried some depth underneath the earth, and yet they could follow that scent trail with a high degree of fidelity. It was from that experiment and other experiments done in Dr. Sobel's laboratory at Berkeley and at the Wiseman involving neuroimaging and a number of other tools and techniques that revealed the incredible power of human olfaction and human's ability to follow scent trails if they need to. And that of course led to many other important discoveries, some of which I alluded to a few moments ago, but you are going to learn about many, many other important discoveries in the realm of olfaction and chemosensation that have been carried out by Dr. Sobel's laboratory through the course of today's episode. And by the end of today's episode, I assure you that you will never look at or smell the world around you the same way again. Before we begin, I'd like to emphasize that this podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at Stanford. It is however, part of my desire and effort to bring zero cost to consumer information about science and science related tools to the general public. In keeping with that theme, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's podcast. Our first sponsor is Element. Element is an electrolyte drink with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means plenty of salt, magnesium and potassium, the so-called electrolytes and no sugar. Salt, magnesium, and potassium are critical to the function of all the cells in your body, in particular to the function of your nerve cells, also called neurons. In fact, in order for your neurons to function properly, all three electrolytes need to be present in the proper ratios. And we now know that even slight reductions in electrolyte concentrations or dehydration of the body can lead to deficits in cognitive and physical performance. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams, that's one gram of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. I typically drink Element first thing in the morning when I wake up in order to hydrate my body and make sure I have enough electrolytes. And while I do any kind of physical training and after physical training as well, especially if I've been sweating a lot, if you'd like to try Element, you can go to Drink Element, that's lmnt.com slash Huberman to claim a free Element sample pack with your purchase. Again, that's can greatly restore levels of cognitive and physical energy, even with just a short 10-minute session. If you'd like to try the Waking Up app, you can go to wakingup.com slash Huberman and access a free 30-day trial. Again, that's wakingup.com slash Huberman to access a free 30-day trial. And now for my discussion with Dr. Noam Sobel. Dr. Sobel, Noam, Um, welcome. Thank you. must say I am extremely excited for this conversation. I've been a huge fan of your work for, more than a decade or two uh yes kind of we, frightening yeah but yeah. we overlapped at uc berkeley some time ago although we did not meet and although we, we
1: lived in the same apartment and we just learned
0: that <laughs> the amazing apartment that you moved out of was the apartment that my girlfriend and i at the time moved into in 2006 mm-hmm. i yep. believe so uh, we've shared quite a few things um Apparently. and today i Love for you to share with us um, all about the amazing landscape of chemosensation, in particular olfaction or sense of smell, and some related perceptual abilities or subconscious abilities, including pheromones, et cetera. To get everybody on the same page, I'd like to just start off by asking, what are the major components of our ability to smell? Obviously, where I like to think it involves the nose at some level. It does. To what extent is that mixed in with other senses, like taste? And perhaps more importantly, what about the chemicals that we are sensing through this thing? And for those of you listening I'm, and not watching, I'm tapping my nose, that we are not aware of, you know, the, the chemicals that, are, that we're inhaling and um, making sense of without our awareness. Now, if you could just um, give us the top contour or even deep contour, if you like, of the, uh, the parts list and the uh, various roles they play.
1: So you, you've you <clears throat> asked a lot of questions at once. Um, you know, I'll start with a little comment on the way you you said smelling through our nose, which we indeed do, but we also smell through our mouth, actually. There's a process referred to as retronasal olfaction, where um, odorants come up through our the back of our throat and out of our nose the reverse way. And we smell things that way as well. And in fact, a big part of the contribution of olfaction to f- food, and taste comes from that, from retronasal olfaction. But uh, uh, primary olfaction is referred to as orthonasal olfaction, that is through our nose. We sniff, and sniffing is a big thing. Well, I have a sense we might talk about that a lot today in all sorts of contexts. So we sniff in through our nose. And to answer your general question of the organization of the system, Um, So molecules, airborne molecules travel up our nose, a distance in the human of about six or seven centimeters to about here where they interact with, I will use the word sheet of receptors, but sheet is a bit misleading here. It's not a sheet, it's very convoluted. We have about seven million such receptors uh, lining a structure known as the olfactory epithelium. This is the sensory surface of the olfactory system, the olfactory epithelium. Again, about probably about six or seven million receptors in the human. In the human, probably of about 350 different kinds. So that's amazing. That means a, a meaningful percentage of your genome is devoted just to this, just to the kinds of olfactory receptor subtypes you have in your nose. By the way, I can share an amusing story. I would imagine amusing stories are good for podcasts. So that number of six or seven million receptors is probably not very well grounded. Uh, it's hard to count, uh, but it's reasonably grounded. And there was this thing roaming around in the literature about bloodhounds having a billion receptors in their nose, which is why they're so amazing. And this number was, you know, it sort of propagated through the literature. And and our lab, um, has written over the years, a few review chapters, and and we were repeatedly writing the olfaction chapter for a very large, one of these large textbooks, the Gazzaniga Handbook of Cognitive Neuroscience, I think it's called. Um, And and we had that in there as well somewhere. And and one time when we were renewing the chapter for a new version of the book, I told the graduate student who was leading that at the time, Araya Shurun, she's now a, a professor at Tel Aviv University. I told her, Check that, check that reference out. Where in the world did that come from? And we started going back and back and back. And it turns out it comes from a textbook, an Australian textbook. And we found the author of the textbook and, and we wrote her and I said, look, there's this thing in, in the literature of a billion receptors in, in the bloodhound. Where did that come from? And, and surprisingly, she answered me. And you know I was hoping to get a reference, right? But it was a reference. And, and this is where it really becomes funny for us because she said, I, I, I was once um, at a lecture of uh, an olfaction geneticists, geneticist by the name of Doron Lancet. Uh, and he said that in the lecture. Now, this is really funny because she's in Australia. This is all over the world, this number. And I'm writing her from Israel and Doron Lancet is in the building next to me, okay? He's in, in Weizmann Institute of Genetics. I mean, he used to be, he's, he's retired now. Uh, and and he, he had meaningful contributions in the history of olfaction. Um, so I picked up the internal phone and, and I said, hey, Daron, you know, did you say that there's a billion receptors in the bloodhound nose? And he said, what's a bloodhound? And so this was totally made up, right? It totally made up and it propagated. I mean, you can, you can probably go into Google and type like a billion receptors in the bloodhound and, and you'll get a lot of hits. But there was absolutely no evidence for that. Amazing.
0: And not just amazing in light of what it, it tells us about olfaction and bloodhounds or otherwise, but amazing because it sheds light on just how much of what is in textbooks, scientific and medical, is absolutely wrong.
1: Things, things propagate and, and, you know, you cite yourself. And, right. So we fix that in, the, in that version of Great. the... Of the and, and so to finish the line, so, that, so, so odorants interact with these receptors um, here in our epithelium. Uh, where they undergo what is referred to as transduction. That is, the odorants are dock at a receptor and turn into a neural signal or or force the receptor to respond in a neural signal. And uh, this neural signal, in fact, action potentials, not gradient potentials of any kind, uh, propagates uh, via the olfactory nerve. Now, this is a nerve that goes from our epithelium uh, right here. Behind the forehead. No, well, yeah. Yeah. Here, uh, through... Uh, the thinnest part of our skull, uh, an area referred to as the cribriform plate, which is perforated. It has a lot of holes. The nerve goes through those holes and synapses at the first target in the brain, uh, which is the olfactory bulb. In humans, uh, that forms an interesting uh, uh, point of sensitivity um, because a lot of people lose their sense of smell due to trauma uh, because of that structure. A a head-hit type trauma. Well, yes, although uh, you denoted hitting on the front of the head, which is where all this real estate is. But actually, uh, the more common cause for losing your sense of smell for trauma is the back of the head Mm -hmm. because of what's referred to as a contrecoup injury. So as your listeners probably know, our brain is floating in liquid in CSF, in cerebrospinal fluid inside our skull. And when we get hit in the back of the head, the brain has this forward and backward movement in the liquid, in, in the skull, it sort of crashes. It can crash against the front of the skull, which is why you also have, in a contract injury, you also often have frontal damage. But what happens is that this generates a shearing motion on the cribriform plate and the olfactory nerve is severed. And if it's completely severed, it's, it's lost. Uh, for, um,
0: forever, because my, my understanding is that the olfactory sensory neurons can, are among the few central nervous system neurons in adult Humans that can regenerate, so or replenish themselves,
1: right? Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll the, again. There are a few questions. in Yeah, one. that's okay. We so, will, first of all, we if, will spin if, many if, plates simultaneously. If it's completely severed, completely, then yes, you're lost forever. Yeah, if it's completely severed, because even if you'll have regeneration at the basal cell level at the epithelium, they won't manage to find their way back uh, to the bulb. If if you have partial or something left or something shows up in a short while after the injury then you have a good chance of recovery Uh,
0: because they Um, grow along the trajectory of the other axons or pioneering the way for them
1: assumingly yeah interesting And, and so so basically and and basically the time frame and you know it's funny i get a lot of emails on this although i'm not a medical doctor but but i get a lot of emails from people who have lost their sense of smell because it's very distressing and now more people know this because of covid that it's very distressing. And, and basically the rule of thumb is that if you don't get it back within a year to a year and a half, you'll never uh, get it back.
0: My, my understanding of the statistics on olfactory loss in COVID and, and, and other viral type infections is that, um, first of all, I had, I experienced that when I got COVID. Including uh, total anosmia? For one day and not total. It was just, there was a remnant of an ability to, to smell, or or perceived the smell of a lemon, and I was huffing as hard as I possibly could. I actually, uh, there's an over-the-counter remedy, and this is not uh, pseudoscience, because there's a number of papers published about this on PubMed, that alpha lipoic acid can accelerate the recovery of 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 smell, yeah, and and so that's something that um, it worked successfully for me. I'm not saying that oh. that's the
1: only or route. you don't know if it worked successfully for you or if you would have recovered anyway. I mean, you didn't do a control true, study, true, but I <laughs> was not willing to do the <laughs> control experiment. Uh, exactly. So yeah, that, that, let me say two things on this front. First, the D on the alpha lipoic acid is, uh, yeah, it's, and, it's, it's and not lemon. overwhelming. Yeah, but but and losing your sense of
0: smell is overwhelming. Yeah, you know, and, no, no. And, I know. So and so and, I think people feel I'll desperate. One they,
1: word they, about the smelling the lemon. And this is, uh, I'll take that opportunity to, to uh, share more information. When we smell things, it's the result of more uh, sensory subsystems than the olfactory system alone. So you have several chemosensory sensitive nerves in your nose. A primary one beyond the olfactory nerve is the trigeminal nerve, the fifth cranial nerve. So the trigeminal nerve has sensory endings in your nose, in your throat, and in your eye. It has three branches. That's why an onion has a smell and burns your eyes and burns in your throat. Is that why? It's trigeminal, yeah.
0: The tearing of of cutting an onion is trigeminal. trigeminal. It's a
1: trigeminal reflex.
0: Amazing. We talked about trigeminal in the context of headache during a headache episode.
1: It's a trigeminal reflex. So the lemon you were smelling may have been a trigeminal sensation. So smelling the lemon with my eyes is what you're saying. Well, no, with your nose, but with with your trigeminal receptors and not your olfactory receptors. Um, So within, you know, olfaction researcher jargon, uh, there's what we refer to as pure olfactants. These are odors that will stimulate your olfactory nerve alone. They won't influence your trigeminal nerve at all. And an example, just to get a sense of what that might be, would be uh, uh, the coffee right here Mm -hmm. uh, is a pure olfactant. Uh, Vanilla is a known pure olfactant. These things have no trigeminal activation. Um, As long as we're on this topic and we'll weave back and forth, but I'm glad we
0: are on this topic because a tremendous number of people wrote to me during the pandemic and continue to about olfactory, uh, loss. Um, is the, I have heard of this olfactory training where, whereby if you have a partial or even a complete loss of a primary olfaction right. that, um, one is encouraged to smell a number of different smells. I, I grew up studying activity dependent wiring of the nervous system. It makes total sense to me why keeping neurons active keeps them alive. So this this is not fire together, wire together type uh, thing. By the way, that's a quote from Carla Schatz, not Donald Head folks, or me. Um, (laughs) But this is about keeping neurons electrically active, in this case, olfactory neurons, in order to maintain their connections because otherwise they will die.
1: Olfaction is a definite use it or lose it system. And so that makes total sense. And indeed, there's very strong evidence for success of, of uh, the training programs more than the alpha lipoic acid, um, great. To and, know. and so that's a real thing. Mm-hmm. And, and what's cool about that is that you don't need to go out and buy expensive things. Although you can, of course, there are people who are capitalizing on this commercially already. But you can just take things from your refrigerator, or your or your you know makeup cabinet or whatever, and smell them, you know, intentionally and constantly and sniff them, and and that exposure will help you recover. Uh, there is good data on that by now. You made that uh, point in passing about regeneration in the olfactory system, and indeed, one one of the cool things. So, so, in olfaction, you can you can study many things through olfaction, and indeed, one of them is is an, is neuroregeneration, uh, because the olfactory neurons are really the only neurons that do that systematically in the adult mammalian brain, and whether the human olfactory system shows the same level. Of regeneration, as it does in in uh, in other mammals, is and was somewhat questionable. And I'm just bringing that up to share a really cool study that was published in Neuron, I think, somewhere around 2014, um, where to address this question. I just really like the idea of doing that. What the what the authors did um, was look at in in postmortem, they looked at l- levels of C14 in in Adults were exposed to atomic bomb experiments, right? So you have, you can actually look at these at these neurons, and and time them, based on exposure to radiation. Um, and that paper suggested that that there's not as much turnover in the human olfactory bulb as there is in other mammals. Uh, other lines of data suggest otherwise, so this is kind of a debated question as to what extent of neurodegeneration you have in in the human olfactory system as opposed to other uh, uh, mammals. But but that was just a really cool paper, I think, of of, of doing that. Fascinating. No, I, I... So should I finish the the path just so please, we have the. So, so we said so so information then synapses at the olfactory bulb from from uh, 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 the the olfactory epithelium, and. The pattern of that synapsing follows what's referred to as the most extreme case of convergence in the mammalian uh, nervous system. More specifically, what happens is that all the receptors of a given subtype, and remember in humans, we said we have about 350. In the mouse, we have about 1,200 probably. Um, So all the receptors of one subtype converge to one location in the bulb and uh, this location is referred to as a glomerulus or an implore glomeruli. And and that may be a slight oversimplification. It's in fact two glomeruli. There's a mirror, sort of a mirror cut line. And so all the receptors of one subtype will converge to two mirror glomeruli on the olfactory bulb. So you end up having uh, two glomeruli that reflect that one receptor subtype. And so if, and this is as far as the, I'm giving you now the textbook view of, of how the system works, but then I can, I'll happily share with you things that pose a problem for the textbook view of how things work. But the textbook view of how things work is that every such receptor subtype is responsive to a small subset of different molecular shapes, what's sometimes referred to as odotopes, the molecular aspects of the odorant. So each receptor is, is responsive to a different subset of odotopes, let's say 10. And each ototope will activate a different subset of receptors. So potentially you have this insane comet of this potentially 350 dimensional space in the human, potentially. But then because of this convergence, you end up having on the bulb in a way a map reflecting o- receptor identity. So, so let's say this coffee uh, activates receptors of type one, three, and seven. So the glomeruli of receptors one, three, and seven will light up, quote unquote, when I smell the coffee. And if you could take a snapshot of that, theoretically you would have the map of of coffee and and so on and so forth. This this is sort of the textbook view of how the system works. And and then information goes from the bulb to several targets in the brain. I mean, what is referred to as primary olfactory cortex is piriform cortex and, and enthrinal cortex. This is on the ventral surface of the brain, the lower portion of our temporal lobe. Um, And information goes there directly, but it also goes directly to the amygdala. It probably goes directly to the hypothalamus. It may go directly to the cerebellum. Uh, It goes all over the brain. So so information projects widely from there. And as far as people understand, the map that may exist on the bulb uh, doesn't exist in the rest of the brain. And the understanding of of how coding occurs in the rest of the brain is, is murky. Commonly, one hears that the
0: memories that we have of odors are somehow more robust um, than the memories of other perceptual events in our life. I I don't know if this is true or not, but um, people will, will say, for instance, I can still remember the smell of my grandmother's hands or the smell of cookies in her kitchen. At a minimum, it points to the fact that smell and memory are closely linked. And you just mentioned a direct, um, you know, multi-station, but nonetheless, somewhat direct path from the nostrils to the hippocampus, uh, one of the primary encoding centers of, to, of memories the is the yeah, yeah, which Two synapses is, away. Yeah, which is a remarkably short pathway, considering that, for instance, uh, just by example, because uh, some of our listeners won't be familiar with this, but some will, that sound waves that, uh, you know, are transduced into neural signals at the level of the inner ear go through many stations before they arrive at the location in the brain where we make sense of those sound waves as voices or music, et cetera. Whereas olfaction is more of a direct route um, to the to the uh, memory centers, Um, is there any uh, just so story or real uh, objective truth to the idea that olfactory memories are formed more easily, or maintained longer, or more robustly than other sorts of
1: memories? So, so yes, (laughs) Uh, but first I, I should I should say that I'm not an authority on olfactory memory. It's sort of it, olfactory memory is a huge field of research and somehow our lab has never really um, gone much into that. Although, uh, again, the same student I happened to talk about before, Yari Sharun, who's again now a, a faculty at Tel Aviv, uh, um, ran a study, a paper, we, I think we published in Current Biology called The Privileged Representation of Early Olfactory uh, Associations. Basically, there's something about the first time you experience a smell that generates a particularly robust representation, more than other sensory stimuli, and and that's what she in fact compared. So there's something about the first exposure to a smell, um, in terms of the brain encoding, that that etches it into our uh, being, and and this is an effect that has you know it has echoes, of course, in literature. I mean, you know, the, the, the biggest cliche in this is to bring up the Proust effect, right? So the Proust effect is when he ate the madeleine and it immediately, the taste and smell immediately reminded him uh, of, of an event in his childhood where, where, uh, where the same madeleine uh, appeared. Uh, um, but but so, so that's something very real. There, there's a lot of research on it, uh, not coming from our work. So I'm, I'm not an authority.
0: But it does sound like there's something special about olfaction. Um, and that doesn't mean that there isn't something special about vision or audition. Oh, no, I'm, each I'm, each I'm, one has its own uh, unique. Uh, I'm the last tone. to argue that there's something special about olfaction. <laughs> it's a,
1: my, my, my students make fun of me because they say, and there's some truth to that, that I try to explain everything through the olfactory system. I mean, for me, everything is olfactory. So, so yes. Through the lens of the nose. I'd like to
0: take a quick break and acknowledge one of our sponsors, Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens, now called AG1, is a vitamin mineral probiotic drink that covers all of your foundational nutritional needs. I've been taking Athletic Greens since 2012, so I'm delighted that they're sponsoring the podcast. The reason I started taking Athletic Greens and the reason I still take Athletic Greens once or usually twice a day is that it gets me the probiotics that I need for gut health. Our gut is very important, it's populated by gut microbiota that communicate with the brain, the immune system, and basically all the biological systems of our body to strongly impact our immediate and long-term health. And those probiotics in Athletic Greens are optimal and vital for microbiotic health. In addition, Athletic Greens contains a number of adaptogens, vitamins, and minerals that make sure that all of my foundational nutritional needs are met, and it tastes great. If you'd like to try Athletic Greens, you can go to athleticgreens.com slash Huberman, and they'll give you five free travel packs that make it really easy to mix up Athletic Greens while you're on the road, in the car, on the plane, et cetera. And they'll give you a year's supply of vitamin D3K2. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash Huberman to get the five free travel packs and the year's supply of vitamin D3K2. When I was at Berkeley, um, I was walking across campus one day and I saw I think students, but I saw people on their hands and knees with goggles on, gloves on, and um, I think their mouths were covered too. Everything Um, was covered. Was covered, and they were walking, well, they were crawling along the ground, um, and I thought this was peculiar, but then again, uh, it's UC Berkeley, and the joke is if it to get noticed on the UC Berkeley campus, you have to be naked and on fire, right? One (laughs) or the other would not be sufficient. Please don't run this experiment, anybody. Um, It's that kind of place. (laughs) Um, yeah. But nonetheless, um, a, a paper came out uh, a few years later describing the results of what turned out to be your experiment that your laboratory was running, which was having people follow an odor trail with their nose. And, um, and my understanding is that people can improve their ability to track sense quite robustly, especially if we deprive them of vision and sensation that is touch, and some other um, sensations. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that study. And sure. um, And for, I think, in our audience, I'm suspecting that many people have a keen, keen sense of smell. Very, I have a family member who just, like, detect any negative, you know, putrid odor in the environment, but also good odors, um, exquisitely well. And I, I have other family members whose sense of smell is quite poor. Um, I'd love for all of those people to learn a bit about what is possible in terms of training up or improving right. our ability to smell. And um, perhaps in the context of that study, if you will.
1: Yeah, so so first, before even talking about improving, just off the bat, humans have a remarkable sense of smell. And this is something, again, in our lab, we already said, you know, yeah, we know this, this is old news, but but to people who who come from different worlds, we have to reiterate this. Sometimes when I give, uh, you know, public lectures to to non olfaction audiences. I reiterate this: humans have an utterly remarkable sense of smell. To to put that a bit into sort of, you know, things that you could that are tangible. So so for example, um, mercaptans, which are added to cooking gas, so that we smell it because otherwise it wouldn't have a smell. So that the smell of gas is not the smell of gas of propane. It's an additive. Mercaptan. Which, yeah, it's mercaptan. The sulfur like uh, yeah. smell. So, so uh, our detection threshold, that is the level at which we can detect it, is 0.2 parts per billion. Okay, there's no machine that can really do that that effectively, no gas chromatograph, nothing. Now, to give you another sense of, of, of making this, again, really tangible, we're working with an odorant in our lab called estratetraenol that our participants can detect when we have it mixed at 10 to the negative 12 molar in the liquid phase. To give you a real sense of that, we did the math. If you would take two Olympic size swimming pools and you would pipe it one ml, one drop into one pool versus the other, you could smell the difference between the pools. Incredible. That's the detection threshold that you have with your nose. People have an utterly amazing nose, okay? So so that's just in terms of its detection abilities which are are just you know remarkable really up there in the mammalian world we're not a bad mammal at olfaction um and and beyond that we can we can improve okay and and the example you're talking about actually started off uh as a lab bet <laughs> okay we we were having a lab picnic so I guess I should here fill in because I I'm I'm your guest from the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel but before going back to my home in Israel, I was a uh, um, faculty at UC Berkeley in the Helen Wills Neuroscience Institute. And this study was done during that time. And we were on a lab picnic and we were having indeed one of these sort of lab discussions, arguments on what humans can and can't do with their sense of smell. And and I said that humans could truly even track odor like a dog and people there said no way. And we ran this quick experiment, uh, which I have video of, but I don't think we'll show it here. Uh, but I actually have original, uh, the picnic video, we have it and, uh, uh, a graduate student by the name of Christina Zelano, a brilliant graduate student at that time, who's now, she's now a professor at Northwestern uh, and she's really leading the field of, of all imaging today, but she was the volunteer and we dragged a chocolate bar across the grass and blindfolded her and checked if she could track the track we made with the chocolate. Which she did very effectively, right? And as did far Did you place as, her at the starting point of the line? Or I think we did. I don't exactly remember what we did on that sort of picnic uh, uh, tryout. But you know, I, I assume she never practiced that in her life before, right? And yet, you know, she she did it really, really well. And and then this went on as a lab bed in a way that that I I said to my, my students, okay, we we have to make this into a, an experiment, put it in an experimental setting and 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 quantify what's going on. Uh and they all said that it would be uninteresting. That was the bet, and and I told them it would be in Nature, which is a bet I won in this case. Right, nature, of course, but, being one of the the ape, three apex <laughs> journals. It, it was it was yep. Nature Neuroscience, to yep. be fair. Yep. But but uh, so so then we we turned it into an experiment, and and what the experiment was is that we brought in participants, naive participants, not not graduate students from our lab. Uh, completely deprived them of any other sensory input. So we blocked their eyes, we blocked their ears, we blocked everything. We block. They were wearing heavy gloves. Uh, you know, they they couldn't sense anything. And we generated uh, uh, a consistent odor path in the grass, which is what you saw. Uh, we did that by burying twine under the grass and uh, odor impregnated twine. So that way, we could generate a consistent uh, odor trail every time. Was it at the base of the grass or in the dirt It was buried, it was buried under the grass. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wow, I did not know that. (laughs) It was buried under the grass and we uh, conducted aerial photography and um, participants also had this sensor pack that they were wearing where we uh, measured nasal airflow in each nostril in real time. And uh, we also used something called RTK GPS which is a way to lay a radio frequency grid over the GPS grid, so that you have millimeter resolution in space, basically. Um, It's used by surveyors, mostly, um, so that we could track behavior. And we found a few things doing this. One is that people could just do this right off the bat. Um, The second thing we found that is when we train them up, then within uh, average of four days, Uh, the rate limiting factor became the speed at which they could crawl. So as fast as you could crawl, you could send track. Of course, you can't crawl as fast as a dog can run, but as fast as you can crawl, you can send track. And then to to sort of add what made it really interesting from from a a systems neuroscience perspective is that we asked whether having two nostrils uh, contributes to this. So uh, we built, we constructed a a nasal prosthesis, if you will, uh, that had two versions. One is that it it combined both nostrils into one big nostril, centered, and the other is that it it maintained two separated uh, nostrils. And we compared performance under these two conditions and people performed better uh, with two nostrils over one centralized nostril, although the flow remained the same. So you're taking advantage of the information uh, that comes from your two separate, totally separate nostrils. By the way, the system I described before of your epithelium and bulb and, and connection to cortex, um, you have two of those, right? It's a completely unilateral, well, almost completely unilateral system. There are some very small exceptions to that, but- but So a representation
0: on both sides of the brain, much in the same way we have two eyes, we're not a cyclops. We can. Gain depth yes. perception information. We can perceive motion better as a consequence and, and a number of a depth, especially stereopsis.
1: And um, we can locate sound because of the difference between our ears and how the head blocks them between and Amazing.
0: I, a, another question about the, the mechanics and strategies that you observed, because I think there's information about the system, the brain, uh, as a consequence. Um, were you in a position to measure sniffing frequency? And the specific question I have is: Were people doing something along the lines of a <laughs> quick sniffing or a right. like a you know a long um, right. draw in so, inhale?
1: You know, we didn't. So we, yes, we were measuring sniffing and recording it, and and we have all the data. Um, there was nothing um, very remarkable in that data in that study. Although it may reflect that we didn't analyze it carefully enough as well, I mean, it didn't. It was it. It wasn't a major component of, of our analysis. So although we did look at it uh, to some extent. Again, you're, you're asking me about a paper from quite a few years ago, so I, I may be forgetting parts of it as well. Um, but I'm sure if it was uh, a, a major component of it, it would have risen it, to the no, top. It, de- but, it definitely you know. wasn't a major finding uh, mm-hmm. of the sniffing behavior um, in the paper. Although, again, we you know sniffing behavior is a huge portion of our our life in lab Uh, uh, and and it's it's taking us to to places and and it's re-emerging now in our work. We're we're doing tons of sniffing work. Um, I I, I can share with you something that that I think will interest your your, uh, listeners and viewers as well. And and we think is is really uh, uh, one of the most overlooked things in, in neuroscience. Uh, I'll, invite you, I'll invite you to do the following experiment. So okay. occlude one nostril by pressing on it from the side and sniff in. And then occlude the other and sniff in. Do you sense a difference in flow? Yes. Okay, do you know why that is? No, and it was the next okay. question on my list. So. Don't feel badly about not knowing why that is. Mm-hmm. Um, most people don't. Uh, but that is a reflection of something referred to as the nasal cycle. So in fact, if you were to do that repeatedly, you would find that your high-flow nostril and low flow nostril alternate every two and a half hours on average. In an absolute way, or is it kind of like a sine wave, like gradual shift to the one and then gradual shift back? It can vary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it can vary, and we don't yet know the rules, uh, all the rules, but, but you have this constant shift from side to side. The shift becomes incredibly pronounced in sleep. So we can measure the power of the difference And in sleep, you have this phase shift of power. You have a huge, like one closes and one opens totally. And it turns out that this is linked to uh, balance in the autonomic nervous system. So as you and your listeners know, we have an autonomic nervous system that has a sympathetic and parasympathetic component to it. and, And they're in balance or imbalance in many diseases, for example, and this interplay between the Uh, between the the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system drives the switch from left to right nostril. Just to remind
0: people, um, sympathetic nervous system has nothing to do with sympathy. (laughs) It has everything to do with generating patterns of alertness. It's sometimes called the fight or flight system, but any pattern of arousal, positive or negative, and then it's balanced in a coordinated way or at least in parallel with the parasympathetic nervous system, which is sometimes called the rest and digest system, but is a... Uh, associated with all sorts of things, the sexual arousal response, um, and a number of other aspects of our physiology. So think of it like a seesaw of alertness and
1: calm, yeah? Perfect. So now imagine, right? Imagine, imagine you would walk around living your life, right? Half of the time with one eye closed like this, and the other half with one eye closed like this, and you had this eye cycle, right? And that was linked to autonomic arousal. I assure you, you would go to PubMed, there would be 5 million papers on the eye cycle, right? And the eye cycle in, every disease you can name and what it denotes and what it tells us and what we can do with it. You have exactly this marker. You're walking around with a marker on balance in your autonomic nervous system and we do nothing with it. So we're in fact now doing a lot with it. Okay. So we built, we built a wearable device that uh, is pasted to your body and measures airflow in each nostril separately and logs it for 24 hours. And we're collecting these 24-hour recordings. We're calling it the nasal halter. So we measure with the nasal halter, and and we're finding it as a disease marker. Um, I can I can give you a nasal halter measurement as an adult, and I can say this is work by team Nassaroka, a graduate graduates in our lab now. Uh, I can so we we can tell the difference between uh, ADHD and non-ADHD adults, and we can tell just from the recording, we can tell if the adults are on Ritalin or not. So I can, I can measure your nasal airflow and see if you are or are not with ADHD and if you are or are not on Ritalin. Incredible. <laughs> I have a, a couple of questions about this. Is it the case that
0: airflow through one nostril is reflective of a sympathetic nervous system dominance versus parasympathetic? Yeah, so- um, or is it simply the case that this alternating left-right nostril um, periodicity, um, which you said I think is on the order of about every two hours. Two and it's a half. Two and a half. It switches to uh, maximal on one side versus the other. Is that simply reflective of an overall balancing? Let's Maybe is it the hinge in the seesaw or is it the tilt of the seesaw?
1: So I don't have a good answer. I don't have a good answer. I mean, you know, I, I could give you sort of a, you know, I could say that to some extent uh, uh, right nostril more open um, is more a sympathetic and the left nostril more open is more parasympathetic, but that that wouldn't be very correct. I mean, you know- I'm sure that the yogis super... are gonna be all over this, so wait, right? Because I, I get this, to...
0: to... my lab does right. do some stuff on on breathing I... and the, the yogis are always saying, okay, you know, because there's this thing, I don't do yoga anymore, but I not for any particular Paranayama. reason, but, but um, where they'll have you breathe through one nostril or the other. And I've, I've probably been asked this question
1: on social media 10,000 times. <laughs> okay, wait. I'm going to become public enemy number one of the yogis right now. So listen, we, so we, we, they'll come at you we, with um, yoga mats, which are not very dangerous. We really, so, so since we're so interested in this mechanism, one of the things we'd really like to know how to do is, is to gain control of it somehow. And there's this world out there of yoga who claims to have control over this. So we said, okay, let's bring like really serious yoga practitioners and see if they can shift their nasal cycle from left to right by, by will alone, right? Not by manipulating themselves somehow. And, and if yes, you know we'll learn from them how they do this, and then we might you know use this to, to cure ADHD or or whatnot, right? So so we posted like on all the lists of like the yoga teachers and had this parade of yoga teachers walking into our lab. It, this was one of the strangest. A lot of sandalwood odors and bare feet. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> white, white uh, clothing and and so on, and and so we we studied. I actually know we studied fourteen yoga teachers. All fourteen, uh, by you know by the conditions of enlistment for this, uh, came in saying that they they can control shifting from left to right uh, nostril
0: without plugging a nostril. Yeah, yeah, by the,
1: by the power of thought yeah. alone. Um, and you know how many of fourteen succeeded? Zero. <laughs> Including, including one, you know, the most extreme one was we, we had this guy who, 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 you know, and we're recording and we, we know how to record this really well, right? And, and he's sitting there saying, yeah, I'm switching now and I'm, I'm, it's switching. And, you know, you're looking at the monitor and no, it's not switching. And, and so no, no yoga teacher that we found uh, could uh, willfully switch uh, between left and right nostril flow.
0: And yet they're, they are convinced that they are, and I have to imagine they're not trying to, you know, there, there's no incentive for them to lie, right?
1: Yeah, no, I, I it, even the opposite, I mean, you know, this puts them in an awkward position once, yeah, I, I don't know what the deal is, but, but none of them can do it.
0: Um, given that the alternating flow through one or the other nostrils reflective of the autonomic nervous system, has this two and a half hour periodicity. If I suddenly enter a bout of stress, for instance, does it switch? Because that's reflective of the autonomic nervous system. Yes. And the reason I'm asking this question is not because I think that's necessarily important as it relates to stress, but I'm trying to understand the direction of causality. In other words, is the, as the unilateral smelling through or unilateral nostril smelling periodicity. There when we named it something, I could name it the wrong <laughs> thing, I'm sure. Is that driving the shift in the autonomic nervous system, or is it merely reflective of the, the so, shift?
1: So you've, you've very concisely now worded AIM-2 of a grant that was probably just rejected. But, but basically, we're trying to answer exactly uh, that question. And we're currently running experiments on that line. So, so we have one experiment where uh, uh, we're looking... Um, so, so we're exposing participants to pain. Uh, we're using uh, cold water hand exposure. It's a really cool paradigm because it, it there's huge individual differences. We just started this. We built the setup just now, and you have a lot of meat to work with there because there's a lot of individual differences. You're, you, it's capped at three minutes so for safety reasons because you have you have participants putting their hand in in uh, two degrees Celsius water, but there'll be participants who'll pull it out at like. 10 seconds nine seconds and then you'll have you'll have three minutes as well so there's lots of lots of uh, and and already in, so now i'm sharing pilot data with you so Quite you around. know to to this might you know when it when this ends up being published it might be the opposite but so far it seems that that uh, the exposure to cold generates a shift in the nasal flow in, in nasal balance so
0: autonomic arousal can drive the shift potentially um earlier you were describing the architecture of these um Smelling systems. And you mentioned these glomeruli where the olfactory receptors converge right. in the bulb. And then later you mentioned that the system is unilateral, but with a mirror representation on both sides of the brain. So, for those who don't think in terms of neuroanatomy, um, what Noam was describing is the fact that, of, of course, there are two nostrils and then a the bunch of receptors, they converge in these glomeruli, but you have a mirror representation of that on both sides of the brain. And that most of that information is kept on one side of the brain or the other. There isn't a lot of extensive intermixing at the first order of processing. So the question I have is whether or not you believe, I'm not asking for data, first I just want to know what you believe, that this alternating nostril airflow phenomenon has anything to do with preferential processing of olfactory information in terms of right brain, left brain, with the caveat that Anytime we hear right brain, left brain, um, we've covered this in a previous episode. Most of what people hear out there about right brain, left brain, emotionality, logical stuff is completely wrong. Completely wrong. Doesn't exist, is a total fabrication. um, And we'd like to abolish that myth. But with that aside, or set aside rather, what are your thoughts on why the information would switch from one side of the brain to the other
1: at all? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think, that the nasal cycle is an olfaction story um so so i i don't think that um that this was shaped by the olfactory system nor do I think this has major impact on olfaction I think the nasal cycle story is a different story about brain function mm-hmm. um so so you know we have we have this sort of Pet theory, we're calling now the the sniffing brain approach, where where basically we think that that nasal inhalation is timing and driving a lot of aspects and patterns of of neural activity and cognitive processing. And and this theory is is olfaction inspired in its beginning. That is, I mean, if if you think of the mammalian brain, right, it's which which evolved from olfaction, it's sitting there, and and in olfaction because olfaction depends on sniffing. You have this situation where you have a you have a sniff, you have information, and then flat nothing, right? And then you have information, and then nothing. So information processing is is one to one linked to nasal inhalation. And and we think that that this property evolved to, to be meaningful in brain processing in general, not only of, of olfactory information, but of any type of information, because the brain evolved in this way, in this way that it processes information on inhalation onset. So a study led by Ofer Perel from our, our lab uh, two, three years ago, um, we looked at, at something completely non-olfactory. We looked at, at visuospatial processing, and we compared visuospatial processing on inhalation versus exhalation. And the brain does this completely different on inhalation versus exhalation. In in that particular task, people performed significantly better on inhalation versus exhalation. What was the task? Was it an olfactory task? No, no, it's a visual spatial task. So this is a task where where, uh, the the specifics of the task were um, that you see uh, a shape and you have to determine, if it's a shape that can or cannot exist in the real world. So some of them were these like usher shapes, like you know, where where one facet doesn't reach the other facet. The so, impossible figure. Type, so. th- yeah, yeah, but 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 uh structural shapes, not mm-hmm. not and and so so a pure visual spatial task, we, we intentionally went for a task that is not considered a ventral temporal task, an olfactory cortex task in any way. And and people performed much better on inhalation versus exhalation at doing this task. Was there a both nostrils occluded um, version where people
0: were forced to mouth breathe?
1: Yes. And in this particular task, they also did better on mouth inhalation versus mouth exhalation. But the difference wasn't as pronounced as it was with nasal inhalation versus
0: exhalation. So I'm a big proponent of nasal, not mouth breathing whenever possible. For sure. um, many health related reasons i'm a big fan of the book jaws a hidden epidemic uh, written by colleagues of mine at stanford familiar with it yeah and this idea that uh, people who mouth breathe um, experience more colds more infections of various kinds it's not good aesthetically or for the dentist denture i never know the teeth the gums it's stuff folks yeah, sorry stuff. my uh, my <laughs> dentist is going to come after me um need to go to the dentist anyway the um that nose breathing is great for your health relative to mouth. So, breathing. so I think
1: it's also good for your cognition, not only for your your dental health. Uh, I think that that uh, nose breathing shapes cognition, and and there there are other labs uh, who who are, uh, are finding the same. Uh, again, uh, uh, Christina Zelano is doing work on this line. She she had major contributions here, and and uh, Yuan Lundstrom is doing work on this line. There there's lots of studies suggesting that um, nasal inhalation is timing cognitive processing and, and modulating it.
0: Incredible. Um, Perhaps not surprising, given what you've taught us about the olfactory system. I mean, that these two holes in the front of our face, these nostrils, I mean, are a pathway to the brain, right? I I love to tell people because I work on the visual system in my lab that you know your eyes are two pieces of brain extruded from the cranial vault, right. uh, which they are. They're the retinas, any, anyhow, and um, and then you never look at anyone the same way again. It's okay, but the the olfactory sensory neurons are right there at the top. So those caverns that we call nostrils,
1: and they are brain. Yeah, definitely. It's it's the only place where your brain meets the outside world because in your retina they're protected by by a lens, mm. and here here you have neurons in contact with, with the world. This, this actually has been the source for some theories on a potential uh, route for, for neurodegenerative um, um, mechanisms. So as, as you may know, um, loss of the sense of smell is one of the, if not the earliest sign of neurodegenerative disease. So for example, in Parkinson's disease, there's a, a loss in the sense of smell probably 10 years before any other symptom. Um, But people have failed to make this a diagnostic tool because it's nonspecific. So it's not as if you could come to your doctor and say, I'm losing my sense of smell, and they'll say, oh, early sign of Parkinson's because you can have many reasons to lose your sense of smell and and so on. Um, But but olfactory loss, again, is is an early sign of, of neurodegeneration. And there's at least one theory particularly about Alzheimer's disease, suggesting that, that Alzheimer's may be the result of, of a, a pathogen that enters the brain through the olfactory system. Mm. Um, How interesting. It, it's, it's not, of course, a, a, a mainstream or widely accepted theory of any type, but, but it's just, it just highlights this notion that, that the nose is a path to our brain.
0: I think these non-invasive um, readouts of potential neurodegeneration um, such as uh, visual tests because of the fact that the retinas are part of the brain and loss of neurons in the retina is often associated with other forms of central degeneration, Alzheimer's, um, Parkinson's, et cetera, as it's a little more invasive than what you're describing. I'm beginning to wonder why we don't um, get have a uh, olfactory task every time we go to the doctor um, that would allow tracking over time because, of course, as you mentioned, someone can lose their sense of smell. Does that mean they're getting Alzheimer's? Not necessarily, but if their sense of smell was terrific the year before, and it's 50% worse the next that's year. That's a really bad sign. Yeah, that's a bad sign. And so what we we're talking about, is something completely non-invasive um, and could be relatively pleasant to innocuous, right. depending so, on the odors used. So
1: yeah, so so first I can answer that, right? And the reason that that's not happened, and that might, that might that may be changing right now, but the reason that has not happened is because olfaction has not been effectively digitized. Right? So if, if you need to generate you know really precise visual information, you can buy a monitor for you know 100 bucks that is at the resolution of the visual system basically. And if you want to generate auditory stimuli really precisely, then you can buy an amplifier for you know, maybe a bit more than 100 bucks, but not that much more. And you'll be at the resolution of the auditory system. In our lab, we build devices that generate odors. Uh, we call them olfactometers, which is a misnomer because they don't measure anything, but that's what they've always been called. So we call them olfactometers as well. And we've already built at least one olfactometer that cost a quarter of a million euro. And it's pathetic, right? So it just, it's pathetic. It's its slow, it's contaminated. It's nowhere near the resolution of your system. So one of the reasons that's not happened is just the utterly poor control of the stimulus. Mind you, to some extent, it has happened in that there there are uh, a standard clinical tests of olfaction, basically two that sort of control uh, the world in this respect. The older one is, is a test called the UPSIT, which stands for the University of Pennsylvania Smell Identification Test. It was developed by Richard Doty and Penn. And it's a test where you scratch and sniff, and, and it's a four alternative forced choice test with 40 odorants. So you have these 40 pages that you page through and you sniff and smell and, and, um, you know, it's been normed on gazillions of tests. Um, I I'm always amused by it because so, so Richard Doty made a ton of money, uh, on the UPS IT, but he needed it because he has a habit. He has a NASCAR. <laughs> so this, Every time we buy UPSITs in the lab, I say there's another gallon of gas into Richard Dodge. He, he races, races. NASCAR. It's not, not like NASCAR, but like one lower than that. Like I don't know, like some some sort of Formula A or Formula Ford or some he races a car. And so that's where all the UPSITs went. So I always feel good about buying UPSITs because I know they're going to that good cause. Keep, but keeping but, him in <laughs> in the in, in the fast lane. Yeah. But but so so that's one test that's out there and and indeed, you know, has been shown as a you know so, so there's reduced upsit in alzheimers and parkinsons and and in a host of other diseases mm. and there's a european version called sniffing sticks uh that thomas hummel uh, has developed and and it's it's basically the same sort of concept of s- that one isn't scratch and sniff it's like these pens that you open up and, and sniff but but those exist but they're not as as convenient as as uh is de- delivering stimuli and vision and audition. And that's why uh, you don't have what you've just suggested. Interesting. You know, another thing, another place where you don't have it, which, which I think is even more, would have been even more meaningful is, is you don't, olfaction well, is not tested in, in newborns, right? Where vision and audition is. You know, there's this thing called congenital anosmia, right? Which is being without the sense of smell from birth, supposedly congenital, uh, which is a half a percent of the population. It's not but, a trivial number. Not totally, yeah. But nobody knows if that really is true. Because he, here's an amazing factoid. Guess the average age at which congenital anosmia is diagnosed. And this is, this is a horrible statistic for me for the way I see the world. But what do you think the average age of diagnosis is for congenital anosmia? Five years of age. Fourteen. Incredible. 14. So most
0: people who are one half of a 1% of the human population, presumably, yeah. is uh, without the sense of smell and doesn't realize that until they're 14 years
1: old. Well, I don't know when they realized it first, but but it's formally diagnosed at 14 on average, which means some of them even later, right? And, <laughs> um, <of> <laughs> and uh,
0: right, it's a distribution. Well, what, um, do they suffer? Yes. So,
1: so first of all, they they suffer socially, um, and there's a host of of deleterious life events associated with congenital anosmia. Um, they, they die younger. Um, they, they, so it's 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 a uh, it's this is work out of uh, Ilona Croy in Germany, um, and you know amongst the various things that are predicted by uh, anosmia is shorter lifespan, uh, but. Things like, you know, reduced uh, social contacts, uh, reduced um, uh, romantic social contacts. Um, it's not a good thing. Um, and, and, and- And do
0: they lack olfactory bulbs? Uh, I'm presuming they have noses and nostrils. There is nose. a condition I'm aware of where, where uh, children are born without noses the, the, or nostrils. The, the, very, are rare, rare, yeah. very rare, very rare. We won't focus things. on that because
1: it's, it's exceedingly rare. Yeah. Um, so but they're born with noses and nostrils um, and here's the thing, right? We don't know if they're born with olfactory bulbs. Um, most of them, although not all of them, but most of them, don't have olfactory bulbs in adulthood, or, or I should rephrase that, have remnant olfactory bulbs, really shriveled olfactory bulbs. But you know, nobody can say the cause and effect here.
0: Before we talk about the role of the the uh, requirement for olfactory bulbs for olfaction, a very interesting topic in its own right. I'm curious as to whether or not their endocrine system is altered, because as we'll soon talk about, there's a lot of signaling through the nose from between individuals that uh, triggers things, everything from the onset of puberty to feelings of romantic attraction, attachment, these sorts of things. Um, Is it known whether or not, and I should say, excuse me for interrupting myself, but as long as I'm interrupting you every five minutes, I might as well interrupt myself too that um, we are well aware of the proximity of the olfactory system to some of the hypothalamic systems that regulate the release of gonadotropins, which control testosterone and estrogen production, et cetera. So um, are they uh, hormonally normal?
1: So some are and some aren't, and I'll I'll be specific. So um, there is a condition known as Kalman's syndrome, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which is hypogonadic uh, development um, in, in men. And in Kalman syndrome, uh, they're practically all anosmic. So, so to answer your question, yes, there's a direct link and, and it materializes in Kalman syndrome. That said, not all congenitally anosmic uh, individuals have Kalman syndrome. And not all, but almost all, people who have Kalman syndrome are anosmic. So, so Kal- Kalman syndrome uh, goes with uh, anosmia. I think, so, so there's a Female equivalent of Kalman's, or I'm, I don't remember its name. Uh, it's not Turner, It's not a in the Turner syndrome family. Is I'm not it? sure. Okay. and I think it's also associated with anosmia, uh, but I'm not confident of that. But Kalman's is is associated with anosmia. Uh, so so the answer is is yes. And and you know we can maybe, you know, olfaction and reproduction are are tightly linked and and they're tightly linked in all mammals and we are big terrestrial mammals and olfaction and reproduction uh, are linked in humans as well
0: um yeah we will definitely get into that i have a, a story slash question that i'd like to um tell you ask you as a segue to that um noting of course that, that we'll get back to the, the requirement for olfactory bulbs yes or no for olfaction uh And um, this relates to when I was growing up, I grew up at the uh, end of a street with a, a lot of boys of my age who, just by coincidence, had a lot of older sisters that were my sister, my older sister's age. It was fortunate, so I had a lot of kids to play with. We would hang out at each other's houses, bike, build jumps and do all those things like kid stuff, fort stuff, get into trouble or whatnot. And oftentimes, we would end up leaving our articles of clothing at each other's houses all the time, like T-shirts and jackets. And so my mom was constantly coming in and saying, there's all, there's this clothes, like someone left us here. I don't know who it was. We were all more or less the same size. And from the, as far back as I could remember, six, seven years old and onward, I could pick up a shirt or a jacket, smell it, and say, oh, well, that's... Eric Eisenhart's shirt, a friend of mine there, I just gave his name. Or, oh, that's Scott Madsen's shirt. I I could just smell the shirt and in a conscious way know who it belonged to, having never, I promise, not that I would pretend if I, ha- if I had, um, pretend that I hadn't if I had, but having never actually done the exercise of going and taking uh, and smelling my friend intentionally. Right. Okay? In fact, if anything, I had all the reasons in the world to avoid smelling <laughs> uh, the other young boys yeah. in my neighborhood. Okay, so... Yeah. Um... That raises the question of whether or not we are consciously and or subconsciously coding identification of people that we interact with frequently or infrequently in terms of their smell or some other aspect of their um, chemistry.
1: Yeah. So, yes, (laughs) Um, we're doing that all the time, in my view, and a lot of this processing Almost all of it uh, is subconscious, and I don't know why. Already, already put that out there, right? I have no idea why why uh, human nature has has uh, or, or nature or culture or whatnot has, has has pushed this into the realm of of subconscious and, and something we're unaware of. Um, but we do it all the time, and and um, and our lab has lots of studies on this front. Um, one of them you may be familiar with that, that had gained some notoriety because it's amusing. Um, so, so we, we look at human behavior a lot. We try to look at it through our nose and in the way we look at what people are doing. You know, we try to think, you know, if I was a dog, what, what would I think of this? And, and, you know, if you look at dogs, right, they, they've you know, when they interact, they visibly sniff each other. It's very obvious. They walk up to each other and they sniff each other. Um, and yet humans don't typically walk up to a stranger and carefully sniff them, right? I mean, it's we're, we're sort of obliged to sniff our, our babies. That's considered almost something you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not culturally taboo to sniff our loved ones. It sort of doesn't seem like an odd thing to do, but we don't sniff strangers, right? Well, or do we? So we're finding more and more mechanisms where we do this. And, and the one I'm referring to now f- for one example is we started looking at handshaking. Handshaking is this really odd behavior. And it's not only in the West, by the way. Some people think it's only a Western thing. It's not. It's almost everywhere. And and there's really poor understanding of how this behavior evolved. Like where did, where did this thing come from? So if, if you, you know, if you, look for the wikipedia version right then they'll tell you that it's to show that you're not holding a weapon in your hand but there's really no good evidence for that it's a bit like the trillion bloodhound receptor story right i mean we tried to find it you know why do people say that and they just do and we started looking at people handshaking and and we noticed or it seemed to us that we're noticing that you know people will shake hands and then go like this and like this for those of and, you listening not watching um, yeah. no
0: um it was taking his hand and, and wiping it on his face. Yeah. Grabbing or, his or, nose yeah, or, or, or touching, touching myself. the side of yeah, his Yeah. These
1: things, these things that we do all the time. After a handshake. Well, so, so first of all, we do them all the time, just period, right? The baseline here is really high and we'll get to that in a second, but, but, but these behaviors that, you know, you, you could easily not notice. Right. And, and so we, we asked whether that's a real thing. Um, and this was a study led by Dan frumin in our lab at the time. Um, and what we did first, and, and if you want, we can link. So, so this was published in eLife, and one of the nice things about eLife is that it has a very effective way to uh, embed videos in the publication. So if you want, we can link this to your system later on. The, yeah, we'll the eLife- put it in the
0: show note captions as a link uh, on YouTube and the other four uh, platforms, Spotify,
1: Apple. So, so what we did is, is um, we, we brought in participants to our lab, and we sat them in the room, uh, experiment room, and, and told them the experiment would start soon, and they should wait for us there. They didn't know what they were coming from. Unbeknownst to them, they were already being videoed. Uh, of course, later on, they they had the opportunity to, to not agree to us saving the video, in which case we would delete it immediately, or or letting us use it for science, or some letting us use it for more than science for, for the video that's now on eLife. And and we would walk into the room and say, okay, just wait here, uh, we'll be right back with you uh, to set up our experiment. and they would sit there for three minutes. And during those three minutes, we could later quantify how much indeed they, just by baseline, how much they touch their nose or their forehead or their chin or how many times their hand uh, uh, reaches their face. And by the way, that baseline is not low, okay? Um, And then three minutes later, an experimenter would walk into the room and uh, would share a, a consistent text. It would be, you know, we're still setting up our equipment in the other room, uh, and and so just wait here and we'll be right back with you but in the meantime just wait here and the, the experimenter went through this like 20 second fixed text and in half of the cases it included a handshake this was a new experimenter not the one who put them in the room so that's the first time they met so it'd be a i'm you know so and so they would put out their hand and shake their hand or not okay and we did all possible interactions in terms of gender so we matched uh, male participants with male and female experimenters and female participants with female and male experimenters. And so you had handshake and no handshake conditions. And then you can quantify that behavior of the hand going to the nose after handshake. And there was a remarkable increase in the hand going to the nose after handshake. And this is one of the nice cases. We, the paper includes statistics, but you don't need statistics here. Just look at the video. It's, it's unreal. The video is unreal. So interesting. So the hand goes to the nose. Now we did a few controls here to verify that this is an olfactory behavior. One is unbeknownst again to participants, we measured nasal airflow. And, and people not only bring their hand to their nose, they sniff it. So, and this is perfectly timed. They go like this. Okay, so they're sniffing their hand. And, and in an additional control study, we manipulated it. So we built this little James Bond thing of a watch on the experimenter's hand that could emit an odor. And the experimenter didn't know what odor they were emitting and they could emit either a pleasant or an unpleasant odor and we could drive the self sampling afterwards up or down. So this was an olfactory behavior, no doubt about it. I mean, we're, we're quite confident. So people in that case, people must've been sensing the odor on
0: their own hand because they shook the hand of the, of the experimenter, pleasant odor, and they're more frequently bringing that hand to their nose versus, Unpleasant odor that had been introduced to their own hand by the experimenter, correct? Yeah,
1: but, I, but no, I think, I think they were sensing the, the ambient odor that came in with the hand that, that shook, and then that either drove them to sniff their hand more or less. The odor cloud and, and, of the experimenter. Yeah, and, and there's an interesting thing going on here too, because people didn't only smell the hand that shook, they also smelled the other hand. And, and we think that there's something going on here comparing self to other. And we think a lot of self sampling might, might reflect that there's uh, on the same line. And again, to, to link to your childhood story of, 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 uh, identifying your friends by, by smell, um, a study we published just last year by, uh, Inbal Rav in Ravrebi in our lab, um, where Inbal came with this, uh, uh, basic interest in this phenomenon that's loosely referred to as click friendships. So people you meet and you click right away, right? You immediately become close friends. And this is a phenomenon that, uh, that you know, is poorly described or is poorly described in liter- literature as, as as an entity. And yet anybody will tell you they know what you're talking about, right? I mean, if you tell, you know, if somebody you click with right away, you, you become intimate within five minutes, right? Everybody experienced this in their life, you know, to some extent. And the question is, what what was there, right? What was it? Was it? because you looked the same, could be, was it because, you know, you had the same sports team that you liked, or is there something uh, uh, deeper here? And, and in Inba's theory was that that, um, that a similarity in body odor may contribute to this, that people who smell the same will click in some way. And so to address that, she, she actually recruited, uh, um, click friends from all over Israel. She posted all over social media uh, to identify uh, pairs of friends. So these are, are same-sex, non-romantic dyads. So these are friends, men and women, uh, whose friendship started as a click. Where here, this becomes sensitive because it has to be a mutual click, right? Later on, we discovered there could be one-sided clicks. So somebody's sure they clicked with somebody else, but the other person... There's
0: a name for that in neurology that our uh, common friend, the late Ben Barris, taught me, which mm-hmm. is there's a phrase that neurologists use, okay, called "sticky." These are people that come up to you and mm-hmm. and start asking you questions and then won't leave you alone. They they're so called "sticky" okay. people that are, and if you ask these "sticky" people, um, "sticky" in air quotes because they're not physically sticky, um, they maybe what <laughs> they could be, um, you know. It, what do you think of the per- this person they'll say oh they're great we're really good friends and so they've made a unilateral um click friendship yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and uh yes neurologists are talking about you if you're if you're one of these people neurologists are talking about you there's a an, an informal
1: diagnostic code
0: uh, sticky
1: so 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 uh she she recruited um um click friends and then she um sampled their body odor and, and we have a, a protocol for this. So they're given, you know, uh, odorless shampoo and soap to use for three weeks or something, and then they sleep two nights in this t-shirt uh, where they have to sleep alone. And then we extract the body odor from the t-shirt, and so we have a way to extract uh, a method to extract body odor. And then she she first asked um, whether indeed click friends are more similar in their body odor than you would expect by chance, and she first tested this with a with device, a machine we call an electronic nose. So an electronic nose is sort of a very poor effort to mimic what the mammalian nose does. Basically, it's a bunch of sensors that respond to airborne molecules. In this case, sensors referred to as moxers, as metal oxide covered sensors. Um, and so she used an electronic nose to sample these body odors. And she found that click friends are indeed more similar to each other uh, than you would expect Uh, by chance by random dyads and and this was a significant difference and after she found that a device could do this she had other participants do this so so she had people smelling the click friends versus non-click friends and and they judged them as being more similar to each other uh, than not now again you you might wonder is this causal or not right because maybe click friends go to the same restaurant together or all the time or whatever live in the same neighborhood and and that's why they they, they smell the same. So to address causality, she recruited total strangers and f- first smell them with the electronic nose and then engage them in a social interaction, something called the mirror game. So in the mirror game, one person moves their hands and the other person is really close to them, like right here, so they can smell each other and has to move their hands with the other person. And one, one prediction there panned out Uh, but another didn't. The one that didn't, so she predicted that people who would smell more uh, similar to each other would be better at the mirror game. That is, they would follow each other better. That did not pan out. However, she then also had, the interaction was completely nonverbal. They were not allowed to speak with each other and she did an entire round robin. So everybody played with everybody else. This was an insane experiment to run. And she then, at the end of the experiment, each person rated each other person as to how much they think they would wanna be their friends. And also on a bunch of ratings, how nice they think they are, how affectionate they think, a bunch of ratings, okay? All of this was predicted by the electronic nose. So people who smell more similar to each other, think that the other person is more likely to be their friend, is more likely to be a nice person, et cetera, et cetera. So we could actually predict friendship using the electronic nose. So this is not a result of friendship. it's It, it plays into the, causal elements of, of building friendship. So this is to relate to your childhood story. Uh, there's something going on here. We're, we're constantly smelling ourselves, constantly. This constantly, I mean, if you want to link, I'm, 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 the reason I'm smiling, I mean, and, and your viewers or listeners will understand why I'm smiling, I'll send you a video to link uh, uh, in, in, the, in into your podcast here. Uh, we thought of calling, the, the, the fact that people constantly sniff themselves, we thought of calling this the Low effect. And Low. so so in, in America, this won't pass that effectively, but in in, in the rest of the normal world, uh, Joachim Lowe is the soccer, the national soccer coach of the German soccer team. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know who would be a very famous coach here, but Steve Kerr, right? I mean, this is the, you Good know, the, this is a super, super famous uh, name, all around the world, where soccer is the primary sport that people watch. Um, And and once people will see this video, they'll understand why we thought of calling this the low effect. Uh, It's very graphic. Uh, but, But people are constantly smelling themselves. They're smelling themselves with their hands. They're smelling themselves explicitly. People are constantly smelling themselves, constantly
0: smelling others. Um, I find this topic so interesting. Um, and first of all, confession: I definitely smell myself multiple times per day, and everybody does. Okay, good. Well, and yeah. I, I, um, I would do it anyway. Um, uh, I think I like most people. I, I either find my own smell to be neutral to pleasant. Right. I um, occasionally I'll be like, whoa, I, I need to take a shower. As long as we're talking about smelling oneself and um, friendship, kinship, and its relationship to smell we have to talk about the relationship between smell and romantic attraction and bond. So my understanding is that if, for instance, a mouse is given the option to mate with any number of other different mice, they will bias their choice toward the mouse that has the immune composition, the so-called MHC, MHC. major histocompatibility complex, which yeah. reflects immune diversity, the immune system that is most distant from theirs. And the, the evolutionary argument being that were they to um, produce offspring, that the array of immune genes would be much broader than if they were to select an animal very close to them. And in addition to that, that one of the most strongly selected against behaviors, not just culturally, but at the level of eliciting a sense of disgust, maybe even from the activity of the hypothalamus, is mating with very close kin, aka incest, because that can potentially, we know, produces a higher rate of mutations. In other words, whereas you described the relationship between smell and choice of friends as you uh, choose people who smell more like you, my understanding is that in the context of uh, su- choosing romantic partners or sexual partners or both, that you choose the person whose odor and therefore immune composition is most different
1: Right. So the way you describe the animal literature is correct. And there's evidence to similar mechanisms in humans. Our lab has not worked directly on this issue of, of, uh, of uh, romantic selection based on odor. Um, there's a bunch of papers, um, Wedkind et al. In, in the Wedkin lab and also Porter. I'll, I'll email these to you later on. Um, that have have done a lot of this work and find exactly as you say that that um, um, romantic odor preferences in humans uh, are influenced by body odor and that this is linked to uh, MHC uh, 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 histocompatibility complex makeup of the, the portion of our genome that that shapes our immune system uh, to some extent. Um, so so this effect. Um, has been studied and reported on again extensively in mice and also uh, in in humans. Um, not work that that we've done. Um, the one sort of tangent work we've done, and 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 I'd like to maybe tell you about. It relates to to an effect that that is one of the most remarkable effects in, in mammalian social chemo signaling. So, and, and also related to, to so it's, it's not related to romanticism in any way, or, or, but, but, but it's related to reproduction. And, and, and indeed in our lab, we've not looked at romanticism, we have looked at or are looking at reproduction. They're not always the same. Um, Certainly, <laughs> um, they can. <laughs> they can. Animal mammalian or, or terrestrial mammalian reproductive behavior is, is dominated by, by the sense of smell um, in, in mammals. And here, remember initially when you started off, I, I noted that there are several subsystems in our nose that transduce odorants. And, and so primarily the, the main olfactory system, the, which is cranial nerve number one, and the trigeminal nerve, which is cranial number five, um, most terrestrial mammals have another subsystem, referred to as the, the uh, secondary olfactory system, that has a separate sense organ in the nose. This organ is known as the vomeronasal organ. It's uh, a small pit in the nasal passage of, of most terrestrial mammals. Sometimes it's uh, described as a communicating pit because sometimes it connects the nasal passage to the roof of the mouth. Sometimes it, commu- it connects both. And so there's this sense organ with its specific receptor subtypes, uh, VNRs, vomeronasal receptors, and uh, this um, um, is linked to a to a sort of separate portion of the olfactory bulb. Not really the main olfactory bulb, but it's referred to as the accessory olfactory bulb, um, and from there directly to the limbic system, to the to the portions of the brain that control reproductive behavior. Uh, and aggressive behavior. And and in most um, terrestrial mammals, this subsystem processes odorants that are sometimes referred to as pheromones, uh, although that's in many ways a problematic term, but but odorants that are referred to as pheromones, namely odorants that are emitted by another member of the species to influence uh, that member of the species and alter behavior or hormonal state. and. And and some of these pheromonal effects are are utterly remarkable. And in my view, the most remarkable of all is an effect known as the Bruce effect. Uh, This was an effect discovered by Margaret Bruce in 1959. She was a a British uh, scientist. And in the Bruce effect, when you expose a pregnant mouse at an early critical stage of the pregnancy, um, I think up to about day three, uh, if you expose the pregnant mouse uh, to the odor of what is referred to in technical terms as the non-stud male, that is a male who did not father the pregnancy, she will miscarry the pregnancy. She will abort it. Now, that w- that's an insane decision made by the female here, right? Because she's invested quite a lot in this, right? In 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 biological terms and in, in, in forming this pregnancy and maintaining it. And yet she drops it on the basis of an odor. Um and this effect is remarkably robust and what do i mean by remarkably robust so this will occur on about 80% of exposures now as you know 80% is 100% in biology right i mean there's nothing that happens at more than 80% so it's a remarkably remarkably robust effect this this dropping of the pregnancy and we know it's mediated by chemosensation 3 the know for sure and we know in the following way so first It's enough to just bring the odor of the non-stud male. You don't have to bring the male himself, right? So you just can bring bedding from a non-stud male and and that will induce uh, the Bruce effect. But of course, uh, the most telling set of experiments is that if in the female mouse, you ablate the vomeronasal organ, you just burn this tiny structure in the nose, then the effect disappears. So the effect is completely dependent on the vomeronasal organ. and, and, and I find this utterly a remarkable effect, right? I mean, it, it, because, again, because of the the extent of, of cost that the, the female takes on here uh, based on on this information and smell. Now, humans, the, the, the sort of the going notion in olfaction is that humans don't have a functional vomeronasal organ. So we don't have that uh, functional organ in our nose. Now, I'll point out, we actually do have the pit, so the the, the structure uh, or the outlining structure is there, uh, but the pit that we have is considered vestigial and non-functional.
0: And what about this thing I learned about at Berkeley uh, in integrated biology class that we have something called Jacobson's organ?
1: This is the same organ. So, so Jacobson's organ is the vomeronasal organ. Uh, it's also called Jacobson because um, I think Jacobson was a military physician in like the 1800s in Holland or something, and he found it in in, in a soldier he was operating on or something like that. The the, the story comes from something like that. But but uh, Jacobson organ is another name for the vomeronautical organ. These are one and the same, the sensory organ of the accessory olfactory system. And again, the going notion is that the human Jacobson organ or Vomorna's organ is vestigial. It's non-functional.
0: Does that necessarily mean that we don't have these pheromone effects? No,
1: it does not. So first of all, we know that lots of what are considered pheromonal effects, namely social chemosignaling in rodents are mediated by the main olfactory system. We know that for sure. Um, There are several examples for this in mice and rats and rabbits and so on and so forth. So, so a, uh, these can be mediated by by the main olfactory system and, and, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second, but first to finish the the Bruce effect. Um, And and second, and and I'm going out on a limb here, uh, but I'm willing to take that that, uh, risk. For me, the jury is still out on human vomeronasal organ. Um, The the decision or the the notion uh, that it's non-functional relies on about one and a half papers Post mortem, uh, looking for the nerve that connects this thing to the brain and failing to find it using staining and so on and so forth. But staining post mortem studies in humans are, are notoriously complicated. Um, basically, you know, for many reasons, one of them is that the material is just always has gone through, you know, it's, it's not ideally uh, uh, set as it is when you sacrifice an animal and, 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 and study its, its tissue. Um, so, so based on, on really, really a paucity of studies that fail to find, uh, this nerve, the notion is that the structure is vestigial, uh, in humans. I don't have any evidence that it's functional, mind you, but, but I'm just not sure that it's not, Mm. but, um, what we do have a suspicion is that humans may, Experience something similar to a Bruce effect. So, first of all, humans have an enormous um, number or ratio of of, of, uh, of spontaneous miscarriage. Are they um, occurring more often in the first trimester? Because you
0: mentioned yes. that in the Bruce effect in the mice is in the first three days or so following yeah. pregnancy, which in the mouse gestation, as I recall, is about twenty-one days in the mouse. So you're talking about one-seventh of total gestation. So I'm yeah. I'm not quick enough to to nor is it important to translate, but this would be first trimester yes, humans. Yes,
1: which is indeed Early when first most, trimester. when most miscarriage occurs. Mm-hmm. Now, hu- humans have, again, a huge number of miscarriages and, and the numbers, I'll, I'll soon share them with you, they, they sound odd. And the reason they sound odd is because if, if you have what's sometimes simply referred to as failed implantation, right? This can occur, you know, in days one, two, nobody ever knows, okay? so So some papers talk about 90% of all human pregnancies end in miscarriage. This is counting uh, a failed implantation in day one, two, et cetera. More conservative studies talk about 50%. Nobody will argue 30%. Okay, so a huge number, a huge number of of, uh, human pregnancies end in miscarriage. Now, out of these, there's a portion that are, are unexplained. Right, so nobody knows why. I mean, there are portions that are explained by all sorts of genetic factors, developmental factors, and so on and so forth. But there's also a proportion that are unexplained. And 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 so all I'm saying is that there's there's a statistical backdrop or setting, if you will, for something like a remnant Bruce effect in humans. Now, with that in mind, we we approached a group, um, of, of we 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 enlisted a group of of. of They're not really patients and participants in in a study of people who, couples who are experiencing what is referred to as unexplained repeated pregnancy loss. So, formally, if you have uh, two consecutive uh, unexplained miscarriages, then uh, that, that is sufficient for the diagnosis of unexplained repeated pregnancy loss. However, in our cohort of 30, we had couples who experienced 12 consecutive unexplained repeated pregnancy losses. So, so the two, the two is just the formal, all of our cohort was like 12, five, you know, so, so this is an emotional, difficult place to be. And, and these are couples who who are losing uh, their pregnancy for no apparent reason. So they've gone through all the tests that you can imagine of, you know, genetic incompatibilities and all sorts of issues, uh, clotting, all, all the, all the, the known suspects uh, for, for pregnancy loss. And the, the medical establishment remains totally at a loss as to why these pregnancies aren't holding. And so we hypothesized that that perhaps here there's something akin to, to a Bruce-type effect. Obviously, it's not going to be the same as in mice, but, but something like a Bruce effect. Now, of course, at that stage, we could not do anything causal to, to test this, right? But what we could do is to see, uh, you know, to, to seek circumstantial evidence to see if if where there's fire, maybe there's smoke. And what we did was we tested uh, olfaction and more specifically the response to to male body odor uh, in in the the couples experiencing um, uh, repeated pregnancy loss. And we found a few things. First of all, if you think of the mechanisms behind the Bruce effect, The Bruce effect implies that the female has to have a very clear memory of uh, the fathering male, because if she's going to miscarry in response to the non-father, she has to know father, non-father. I mean, that means that there's a pronounced olfactory memory at the moment of mating. Okay. And and in mice, this has been very well characterized and and attributed to the anterior olfactory nucleus structure in the brain. Um, but you'd have to have this memory in order to make that decision. Now, so to address that, and here you're going to see that you and your childhood story from before stand out a bit as, as uh, skillful, is that the first thing we did was just behaviorally test uh, whether um, these women and control women could identify the smell of their uh, spouse. And you might be disappointed, or you know, it, it, we would all are probably a bit disappointed to learn that control women uh, are very poor at this. So, so you, you would think that, that women would be good at identifying the body odor of their spouse. They're not, uh, they're not far from chance. However, um, the uh, women who experience uh, repeated pregnancy loss, are more than, they're, they're double uh, at their performance level. So this is not a nuance effect. Uh, women who, who, re- who, who experience repeated uh, pregnancy loss can identify uh, their husbands or their spouses uh, by their body odor. With much uh, greater acuity than the typical person. Double, a bit more than double and, w- and way above chance.
0: Yeah no I I sorry I posed it as a question but I meant yes with much greater acuity uh and double is is yeah. a significant um improvement are they much better at detecting any
1: odor no they're not we did the controls and they're not and then um we also measured using fmri we measured their their brain response to uh, stranger male body odor and they and 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 this was quite remarkable because you know we approached so this was a full brain analysis so without a region of interest analysis so it's not as if you're uh, tweaking your statistics to look at one part of the brain you're just looking at the entire brain in the response to male body order and asking de novo is there a difference between these two groups of participants and there was one huge difference and it was in the hypothalamus Mm -hmm. and so there was a difference in response to stranger male body order between the two groups um so so olfaction is altered in spontaneous, repeated spontaneous uh, pregnancy loss. We don't know this is causal, right? Uh, but but that was enough for us to approach the ethics committee um, to run a causal experiment. Um, and we're at the beginning of that now. Incredible, I can't wait to hear the the results of that. It's that gonna experiment. take, it'll probably take years, mm-hmm. um, a few, because, because it, it, the these are slow experiments to run. Uh, um, recruitment is complicated, uh, but basically, we're we're blocking um, we're blocking smell in in uh, couples who are trying to maintain a pregnancy. I want to
0: touch on some other uh, so-called pheromone effects. And one thing I heard you say during a talk, which I think really captures this whole issue of are there pheromone effects in humans. Um, very nicely, as you said, you know, whether or not it's a classic pheromone effect or whether or not it's olfaction or something else, this is chemosensory signaling yep. between individuals. Um, the reason this is important to me is a, a few years ago, I did a social media post about pheromone effects in animals and some potential pheromone effects in humans. And a couple of the um, uh, human uh, olfactionistas, um, more from the, the, actually who work on animal models, really came after me with, um, you know, intense sniffing, saying, uh, you know, there is no evidence for human pheromone effects, human pheromone organs, and I think today you've beautifully illustrated how, regardless of the answer to that, humans are contained and are emitting chemical signals that influence each other's physiology and behavior.
1: For sure, uh, for sure, and and the the term pheromone is a problematic term in any case. I mean, the term the term was um, put forth to describe insect behavior, right? So you know. If, if you were given a hard time by the mouse people, you could have given an, an e- them an equally hard time if you were an insect person, right? Because really the, the place the term is, is, uh, is accurate, is, you know, so the first pheromone that was discovered was bambicol, which is the pheromone that has the male moth follow the, the scent trail of the female moth. Bambicol is a pheromone. Um, Insect pheromone people will argue that this stuff that people talk about in mice and rats is not pheromones. I see. And, and and it all becomes semantics. Yeah, right? sort of like and,
0: nerdy inside ball. Yeah. It's
1: all semantics. Yeah. So I don't, I in, in our publications, we don't use the term pheromone, you know, because it would not help me and it would probably only hurt us. And so, you know, we talk about chemo signals mm-hmm. and humans definitely emit chemo signals from their body. And these chemo signals influence other humans and influence their behavior. You know, and, and, and th- there there are several examples of this. One of them I'll, I'll point out first, which is sort is of the most widely studied and, and not mostly from our lab, actually. I mean, the, the, the flavor of the month for the past 10 years in this field is what's referred to as the smell of fear, right? So um, this is probably true of, of many mammals and humans. Uh, it's true of, um, we emit a specific body odor when we're in a state of fear. Uh, This was first discovered in humans by Denise Chen um, out of, I think, Brown. I'm not sure. I think that's right. Yep. Humans emit a particular body odor when they're in a state of fear, and this body odor influences other humans, in effect, increasing uh, their autonomic uh, arousal, their sympathetic state. Um, So in effect, you could say that Fear is contagious a bit. So the smell of fear uh, is contagious. By the way, culturally, uh, we know for ages that dogs can smell fear in humans, but actually that was only really shown about a year and a half ago in a study. So it it, it was always said, but it wasn't really shown effectively. It was shown about a year and a half ago in a study that dogs indeed can smell human fear Um, and humans can smell human fear. So several labs starting from Denise Chen and Haviland Jones and, And then in our lab and in other labs, um, if if you collect body odor from people in a state of fear uh, and collect body odor from the same people when they're not in a state of fear, uh, other people can determine which is is the state of fear or not, and and this influences their behavior. What about the smell of safety,
0: or is that simply the absence of the odor corresponding to fear? And the reason I ask this is somewhat woven into our um, prior discussion about mate choice, Um, Again, I'll ask the question in a form of of brief anecdotes. Um, I'll use the I had a friend who uh, approach here. But, um, well, one phenomenon that has nothing to do uh, with me in particular, I think this is a common phenomenon, is um, romantic partners leaving articles of clothing at each other's homes. Now this could have other purposes to mark territory, but um, visually marking territory, but also um, scent marking territory is very common in the animal kingdom. Yeah. Um, it's not uncommon uh, for uh, romantic partners when one is traveling or away for the other partner to smell their article of clothing in order to bring about positive uh, connotations yeah. of the other partner. Very yeah. common behavior. If you're doing this, folks, it, every, other people are doing this too. Yeah. Um, it raises questions, for instance, about whether or not the mourning period part post breakup, whether by decision by death or by um, some other phenomenon that's forced the breakup, um, whether or not that mourning period has something to do with an olfactory unlearning of, uh, um, and made slash and on and on and with, on. With all um, these insights, I right. would
1: offer you to be a postdoc. And well, well, I was going to say, listen, I have I a sabbatical that that coming up, so I would love to do I, but, a sabbatical. But it's going to kill yeah. me. So no, know. exactly. He's exactly.
0: like, you don't want me to work for you. We that's, talked about this earlier. That's what I'm for saying. For other reasons, exactly. Uh, there's a story there. What <laughs> Noam is referring to, I'll just tell people because yeah. inside jokes on a podcast <laughs> don't really work. Uh, earlier, I was, just, I was referring to the fact that I've had three incredible scientific mentors, uh, undergraduate, graduate, and postdoc. But... Um, for reasons uh, that are unclear to me, um, uh, the first one died of suicide, the second one cancer at fifty, and the third one um, pancreatic cancer in his early sixties. And the last one, before he died, who was an MD and a common friend of Gnomes and I, turned to me and said, "You know, Andrew, you're the common denominator. So, um, yeah. you know, the, the joke, I, I the, the joke in joining. my business is you don't want me to work for you. <laughs> so, nonetheless, I would love to do a sabbatical in your lab. No,
1: that, so, so what I was trying to say in that roundabout way is that those are all really Keen observations and good ideas, um, for sure. And 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 they just highlight again, you know, that that we're incredibly olfactory animals. You know, I have, and 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 you're you're even talking about the nuance. We're very olfactory, even not in the nuance. I mean, you know, I, I have this when people tell me that, you know, that we don't use our sense of smell and we don't need it and all that. And and I I have to deal with this a lot, right? I have to deal a lot. You study vision, nobody will tell you that vision is unimportant, right? No, I have to very
0: visually dependent. I don't need a dog to take over my olfactory system if I lose olfaction. But I'll tell you from having lost my sense of smell sure, yeah. for one day, right. I was in intense fear. I bit into a blue. I love blueberries. I'm like a drive by blueberry <laughs> eater. If they're there, I just kind of pick them up like a grizzly bear and <laughs> cram them in my mouth. So keep them away from me if you don't want them eaten. <laughs> but I can't, I almost can't help myself. Um, I bit into a blueberry or a handful of blueberries and they just, the, it was the sensation of little bags of water. And uh-huh. I immediately felt like tremend, it, it, tremendous, tremendous
1: yeah. grief. I'll tell you a, a sort of a, a throwaway line that I use in this when When I talk with people, you know, I, I mean, you know, take the two most basic behaviors that sustain us, right? Let's say I give you a choice between a beautiful-looking layer cake with 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 strawberries and blueberries and and uh, and whipped cream, but that smells of sewage, versus some gray brown mix that smells of cinnamon. Which do you eat? Oh, simple. The latter. right. You eat the latter. Right now, imagine I offer you a mate, choose the the gender of your liking, right? That looks like a Greek god or goddess, right? But smells of sewage or an ordinary looking individual that smells of sin itself. Who do you choose? The latter. Right. So in the two most basic behaviors we have, we follow our nose, not our eyes. Right, definitely not always in
0: predictable ways because you offered an extreme example, which is the best example. But I, for instance, for reasons I don't know, I've never liked the smell of perfume ever. In fact, I find it aversive, but I do, I confess, I do like the smell of certain body odors very much. And I'm very um, particular about that. And I know within an instant, um, and so uh, this is a, a problem for any romantic partner uh, who likes perfume for me, yeah. but I know many people like perfumes and colognes and things of that I like sort. And, and in <laughs> fairness, I've also been told um, that uh, by someone that they couldn't spend time with me because they do not like my smell. In fact, they dislike it. And I, and fortunately yeah. for me, there's at least one person on the planet who said the opposite. <laughs> yeah. um, so, the, um, so I completely agree with what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I can also say that um, I imprinted on the smell of my, I had a bulldog mastiff um, when I raised from the time he was a puppy. And I imprinted on, I imprinted on his smell immediately. And even though to other people, he was a bulldog mastiff after all, his smell was was rather aversive. To me, he, he smelled delicious, right? (laughs) And it made me, it smelled like home. And he was my best animal friend for a long time. So, and on and on and on. Right, the smell of children, as you said, the backs. We had a guest on this podcast who I'm sure you're familiar with, Charles Zucker, yeah, professor at Columbia, has done incredible work in vision and olfaction, uh, thirst sensing, and he and I talked a little bit about this. That um, there's something in the breath of romantic partners um, that's hopefully appetitive, not aversive, as well as in children. He was talking about the smell of his grandchild, the the nape of their, the back of their neck. And how he misses that smell because it, when he thinks about missing his grandchild or children, it's that smell that that that's associated with that See feeling.
1: Hexadecanal. Hexadecanal.
0: <laughs> yes. Is it, Charles <laughs> Unley, your grandchildren smell like hexadecanal? Yes. He's gonna they come do. after me now. <laughs> they do.
1: And, and so uh, this this is a study uh, ran by uh, Eva Michor, uh who was a graduate student in our lab, um, and and Eva. Was interested in aggression. She was really into aggression, uh, and actually, when she started, and 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 so she, when she started off, we said, "Okay, let's do chemo signaling of aggression." She actually was going to like MMA clubs and collecting body odors, uh, and we, we we had all sorts of ideas going, and and she she worked on that for quite a bit. It never went anywhere really, and then at the same time, we had. A colleague of ours uh, from Germany, I mean, when I say colleague, uh, primarily a friend or, or acquaintance I met at conferences, um, Heinz Breer. Um, and, and um, He was studying in his lab, uh, a molecule, hexadecanal, um, that was a chemo signal in mice, where in mice, it was described as a chemo signal that promotes social buffering where social buffering, as far as I understand, it's not my field, but as far as I understand, it's basically a feel-good-together thing. So when lots of mice are together, they feel good about being in a group, and that's social buffering, and it's promoted by hexadecanal, which they emit in their feces, mice. And in his work on hexadecanal, um, and, and so, so so Breer and his colleague, Schwarzman, they they discovered the receptor for this, And then they went and discovered that the receptor is very highly conserved uh, uh, throughout mammalian evolution. And therefore they hypothesized that maybe um, this is a universal mammalian signal. Now, which is unusual because in, in chemo signaling, typically you tend to think of things as being very species specific. But here they hypothesized that maybe hexadecanal, which promotes social buffering in mice, may do something in all mammals. Again, because this receptor is very highly conserved, OR37B, I think. Um, so, they, so so he approached us and said, look, you got to study this stuff in humans, right? Because he knows us as the human people, right? I mean, we go to these olfaction conferences where, where lots of people study mice and, and, and zebrafish and whatnot, and we're the, the human group. So, and, and eventually he just FedExed us <laughs> hexadecanal. And and so we had this thing sitting around and Eva was not going anywhere with her aggression studies with sweat from human participants. And yet she built the entire um, paradigm to study human aggression. So they're standard paradigms. This is a paradigm known as the TAP, the Tyler aggression paradigm. I'll soon describe it. And so we said, okay, we have this hexadecanal stuff here and it promotes social buffering social buffering sounds like it would make you less aggressive why don't you run your tap experiment using hexadecanal? what's the tap experiment so basically what you do is you bring in a participant to lab and you have them um, thinking that they're going to be playing against another person in in this game and you can you can do something like have another person walk into the other room Playing online, so, so connected. So you can fool them into being quite convinced that this is what's happening. And they go into their own room. And in the initial game they play, um, on each round, they're uh they're provided with a sum of money, and this is real money that they'll receive at the end of the experiment. And by turn, each one of them decides how to divide the money up between the two, right? So they're playing. Against another person, they think, but that's actually a computer algorithm that they're playing against, and the computer algorithm is is programmed to be, in, in scientific terminology, a jerk, right? So that you know, like, let's say they have to divvy up a hundred shekel, which is the Israeli currency. So so the you know the other player would say, okay, you know, um, I'll keep ninety six and you get four, right? And then if you, you can either accept it or not accept and then neither of you get anything, right? So basically you're being shafted by, by the other side all the time. And this is called the provocation phase. You're really getting angry at this person because they're, they're really not nice, right? They're, they're shafting you on every trial or almost. And you play this game and, and it goes to its end and then you play, you play a second game, as far as you know, against the same participant. And the second game is a reaction time game. So a target shows up and the first to press it wins. And on every trial where you win, if you want, you can blast the other participant with a loud noise. And and it's a really loud noise. So you're also wearing earphones. It's 90 dB, and it's it's a screeching, horrible sound. It's the most punishment that an IRB committee will let you uh, endure on a, on a participant in an experiment, unless you're in Stanford, 70 years ago or whatever that was. No, but. I was referring to the, the <laughs> classic prisoner experiment, which took place in the building next door to where I work, by the way. So you can blast the other participant with varying levels of, of sound. And you, you have a selection box from something very low to something very high. And what's nice about this is that it then allows you to quantify aggression because the more volume you're blasting the opponent, with, the more aggressive you are towards your opponent. And, and so you have a, a measure of aggression Again, the Tyler aggression paradigm, obviously invented by Tyler, uh, very well validated, studied all over, you know, a a very standard protocol. So uh, we brought in participants and had them play uh, the Tyler, the tap, uh, either under exposure to hexadecanal or control. Now hexadecanal doesn't, it's, it's incredibly difficult to even detect hexadecanal, but just in case Uh, uh, because it's not very, very, it's considered a semi-volatile. It it doesn't have a strong smell. Um, But we buried it, both the control and the hexadecanal in in a a control order that hid them in a mask. And, And she ran lots and lots and lots and lots of participants, men and women. And I'll first tell you the result with men, which is that hexadecanal consistently reduced aggression. People were less aggressive under hexadecanal um, the effect size was was uh, uh, quite meaningful, and later on we learned, because i'm I'm no specialist in the world of aggression, but compared to the effects seen in the aggression world in in research, really, really strong effects. So unusually strong. So hexadecanal lowered aggression in men, and we were like, cool, this is you know, sort of what we were hoping to to see, consistent with the hypothesis uh, and consistent with what it seems to do in mice. But then we looked at the data from women and hexadecanal increased aggression, equally significantly. Is this thought to be something related to maternal protectiveness? We're getting there. So you you got there really fast. It took me a year, but, uh, and, and, and Eva got to it really, uh, I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell you, because remember, we're reaching the back of the head of your, of, of uh, whose was it? Uh, grandchildren? Uh, Charles Zucker. Charles Zucker. The, the, the Charles Zucker, one yeah. of the kingpins of the New York neuroscience mafia. <laughs> yes. So um, so this was really odd to me at that time. So I didn't have the intuition you just had. And I was like, Eva, this, th- there was some bug here. I mean, this, this it makes no sense to me. You know, why would something increase aggression in women and decrease aggression in men? This is really, really strange. And, and I said, okay, I, I want to see this happen again before, you know, we go ahead with this. So she went and did the entire experiment again, and this time she did it within the fMRI magnet so that we, we can also uh, track uh, brain activity uh, while this was happening. And first of all, it replicated again. So once again, uh, hexadecanalum men made men less aggressive and women more aggressive. And, and, and the extent of more than the effect alone, the dissociation was remarkable. This has, the it's, it's almost like a chromosomal test. I mean, you you look at the data on the unit unit slope line, and all all the men are, above, are below, and all the women are above. There, there's this figure in the paper. Then she, she also looked at, at the brain data, and, and this is, you know, although our lab does a ton of fMRI, it's one of the major tools we use to measure uh, brain activity. I'm 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 quite cognizant of the limitations of fMRI, and and this is, I think, sadly. I think the only study in my career, at least, where where I actually managed to also get a mechanism out of fMRI, not only an area that's involved in activity. And and so here's what we saw, that, that hexadecanal alone increased activity quite pronouncedly in an area of the brain known as the left angular gyrus. Now, this is an area involved in what's referred to as social appraisal. So that was kind of cool in that a social order activated the social brain, not the olfactory system per se, and and very pronounced. So on one hand, that was cool. But then what was uncool was that it did the same in men and women. And this was in contrast to behavior, which you don't like seeing, right? I mean, because you would expect brain activity to reflect behavior. And it increased activity in the left angular gyrus in both, both men and women, But then she did a follow-up analysis, which was look at what's referred to as functional connectivity. That is, how does this region of the brain talk with the entire brain, as it were, under hexadecanal versus uh, control? And here, the dissociation reemerged powerfully, whereby the connectivity from the angular gyrus was mostly to the classic neural substrates of aggression, so the amygdala and the temporal pole, and the connectivity went in opposite directions in men and women. So hexadecanal increased functional connectivity in men and decreased it in women. So in a way, this is almost saying that the default brain reaction is aggression, right? The default <laughs> is to aggress. Mm-hmm. And in men, hexadecanal increases the control that the left angular gyrus is holding over your aggression and, and keeping you back. And in women, it let it roam free and they became more aggressive. But I was still puzzled. So, so, the, so I was convinced this happened twice. The MR data provided not only a, a pattern but a mechanism, which is unusual. And yet I, I was telling Eva, you know, but you know this makes no sense to me. And then, and then her insight, which of course afterwards is like, duh, it is no. There's a place where this makes perfect sense, and that is if you are a mammalian offspring, because paternal aggression is often directed at you there's infanticide all over. And sadly, there's male aggression towards human children as well. And maternal aggression is often protective. So if you're an offspring, if you have a molecule that will make your mother more aggressive and your daddy less aggressive, both of those are good for you. So you're winning. So we remembered a recently published paper from a group in Japan that looked at the odors emanating from baby heads. We now come full circle to Zucker's grandchildren. They used a method known as GCMS, gas chromatography mass spectrometry, uh, to measure the volatiles from baby heads because baby head odor is a cultural thing across cultures, even in Japan. And so we quickly went to that paper and to see if one of the molecules that report is hexadecanal and we were very disappointed that it wasn't one of the molecules they reported in the paper. And so we, we wrote to the authors, who are since then our co authors, uh, and we said, Look, you know, we're studying uh, this molecule, hexadecanol, and we don't see in your results. And and we were wondering maybe you had some results that you didn't publish or some supplementary materials or whatever. And uh, this lab, which is a hardcore GC lab, said, No, no, hexadecanol is a semi volatile, which w- we knew. Uh, and our previous paper was not directed to the semi-volatile range, but we can now do use what's called GCX, GC, WGC that uh, is directed at semi-volatiles. And we can do this again. We just uh, studied 11 babies and we can we can see if this is an issue. So we said, yeah, please do. Uh, the bottom line of all this is that hexadecanol is the most abundant semi-volatile in baby hits. It's tons of it coming out of baby hits. So babies, again, speaking about if humans do or don't Chemosignal babies are conducting chemical warfare, right? They're, 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 you know, reducing aggression in their fathers or males around them and increasing aggression in their mothers or females around them. And both of those things are good for them. Incredible. This is somewhat different than what
0: we're talking about um, and yet similar in other ways uh, because it's uh, built off of anecdotal evidence but it's anecdotal evidence that you hear all the time. And yet when you look in the scientific literature, at least by my read, the data are not clear, maybe even contradictory. And that relates to the coordination of menstrual cycles among co-housed women or women who are friends. The, you know, many women listening to this, and maybe some men who are aware of, of this effect will say, oh yeah, absolutely. When I spend time with my friends or go away camping or even spend a day with them, our menstrual cycles become coordinated. However, my understanding is that the early literature, Barbara McClintock? Correct. Um, discovered this phenomenon, published a paper in Science as an undergraduate.
1: 1971, Nature.
0: Amazing, Nature uh, paper. Uh, again, one of the three apex journals and as an undergraduate, fantastic. Yeah. So, discover this, describe this, and uh, probably women all over the world who became aware of this one way or another probably, probably said, yes, absolutely. This gives validation to what we've observed uh, right. over and over again, and, and yet, as subsequent papers have been published, this result has been called into question. Is, uh, is there any uh, final word on whether or not menstrual cycles uh, become coordinated among women who spend time together? And if so, is there any role of olfaction in this, uh, or uh, chemosensing through the nostrils yeah. or, and or mouth <laughs> yeah. um, to support this idea?
1: So, so yeah, so, so I'll start off indeed to echo uh, the background. Is that this study was conducted by by Martha McClintock when she was an undergraduate at Wesleyan College, uh, and she noticed that she thought her menstrual cycle and, and her co-inhabitants in her dorm room um, um, were coordinated in time. Um, and I should say that this comes on the basis of similar or related type effects in rodents. Now rodents don't have a menstrual cycle like humans do, uh, but but. Um, there's an effect in ruins referred to as the Witten effect, which um, resembles uh, this type of of effect. Um, And she published indeed that paper as an undergraduate in Nature in 1971. And to answer your question, she published a follow-up in 1998, also in Nature, uh, with then her graduate student at Chicago, uh, Stern. So this is Stern and McClintock, 1998. And here's what they did. They uh, collected um sweat from donor women and deposited it on the upper lip of recipient women so this would be a fun experiment for you at least because you said you like body odors but for many others perhaps it would be daunting well i like certain
0: (laughs) body odors from
1: certain individuals i don't i don't think i uniformly like all body odors. although i do seem to
0: uniformly not like the smell of perfume, although I should just to clarify because I put this out there and I learned the hard way in the comment section on YouTube. Some of those perfumes I find downright aversive. Yeah. Like it's, a, uh, I think the great Marcus Meister, who a great neurobiologist no, 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 once no, no, no. said, there's basically three responses. It's either yum, yuck, or meh. So some I've, are truly ah, no, yuck. i never heard that one. Kind of okay, like yeah. that one, right? In terms okay. of animal behavior, yeah, human yeah, behavior, yeah. we're either a move we're, forward, we're move an back, or, a, or, yeah, a yeah. Stop, or pause. Um, so some are truly a yuck some many are meh, zero to date are yum for me. Yeah. Now body odors, the distribution is shifted. It could be any one of those three, yum, yuck or meh. So just to be clear, but the the um, yum category is definitely included. Thank so, you for, for allowing yeah, me to do that. <laughs> so,
1: so, so uh, um, so, so she did this study. So, so because right in the original McClintock study, you, you might suspect other uh, drivers of the effect. Even, let's say you, ex, you accept the effect, but still there might be other social drivers of the effect that are not body odor, right? There might be some dominant woman who's dominant in some other way, and this might be driving the coordination, right? So here there was no direct link between these women other than body odor. So if the effect re-emerged, um, it would definitely be an olfactory effect. And what she found is that if she took uh, sweat from the follicular or the ovulatory uh, phase of the donors, one extended the, the cycle in recipients and one shortened the cycle in recipients. I don't remember which was which, but, but basically uh, uh, definitely denoting uh, a chemo signaling effect uh, with the with, uh, opposing uh, uh, effects on duration based on the time it was collected from. Uh, again, published in Nature in 1998. That's it. I, the, there's a, a quotation. I think this is from from uh, from, from uh, I'm not sure, but but you know that that uh, uh, if something is published in uh, Nature or Science, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not true. So uh, with that in mind, um, the findings were since called into question quite widely. Um, one reason is just statistics of cyclic events are surprisingly complicated so so it, it, it's tricky it's once you have a cyclic event sti- statistics become tricky and and so, sh- sh- so Martha took a lot of heat on the statistics of of claiming an effect and i think there was at least one effort of replication that didn't really work out. Um, if you ask me, I'm on the fence. So I, I'm, and but I'm in, maybe in a minority in my field. I think uh, a majority in the field uh, is currently negative. I'm not, um, and I've we've said in lab that we should do a planned replication. Um, we will. It's just. Again, it's a horrible study to run. It's tons of work, and you and and, and you have to run it for a really long time, uh, and and uh, so it's it's just completely non-trivial. Uh, but we have a graduate student now in lab interested in these exact things: uh, Raoult wise growths, and, and she's doing similar stuff. and And I hope we'll we'll do that. I hope we'll we'll try to to replicate this. Um, Very interesting result, and I think uh, interesting
0: because it of its real world, um, meaning outside the laboratory, of course, or experiment analog, but also because pheromone effects and olfactory effects in humans seem unique among, uh, neurobiological slash endocrine phenomena, because there seems to be so many stories that we all have of the smell of our grandmother's hands or the recognizing the scent of, of somebody, or I knew from the moment that um, I smelled their breath, or uh, you know, or I just liked their smell kind of thing. These yeah. kind of things that that inform the the deep potential for a, a real biological phenomenon, as opposed to the kind of thing like, oh, uh, you know, you just throw something out there. Oxytocin is bonding. and and all of a sudden, you know the the general public, not at no to no fault of their own, comes to think that every every aspect of bonding is is oxytocin, and every defect in bonding is lack of oxytocin. The the general public provides a sort of a, a rich um, it's fodder for for exploring all these things, and a lot of times they turn out to be true, right? When, in the context of old action, it, yeah, right? no,
1: it's it's a very primal system, you know. So so uh, it's it's linked to the most, you know, limbic primal mechanisms in our brain, and it drives primal behavior. It's it's an incredible system. I
0: I have a question about. A particular study but I'm just going to cue it up and you'll know immediately what i'm, I'm queuing up um, and that is what is the relationship between odors and hormones and in particular
1: crying as I pointed out previously the the sort of flavor of the month in, in human social chemo signaling research is the smell of fear and the the media uh, of the month is sweat right so so um, the the few Maybe tens of labs in the world that study uh, human social chemo signaling all collect sweat and, and that's the media uh, they look at.
0: Is it always from the armpit? Or is there are there meaningful differences in terms of the sweat emitted from different locations on the body? So, I already know the answer to that as I yeah. ask it, but let's just stay above the waistline
1: and um Oh no no, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so or we're, below the waistline. I mean yeah.
0: we're biologists after all.
1: We you know. we just yeah, so it's it's funny we 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 have we're working on a paper on that right now it, on the smell of fear. Uh so so we have a nice paradigm for uh, generating fear. We throw people out of airplanes. It's a very effective way to generate I fear. Have to come to your lab. Uh, it sounds <laughs> like the greatest we, lab in the world. Uh, we we didn't invent that by the way. Uh, the first to do that was uh, um and I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. I think it's Mujika Perudi. Um but but um that's our paradigm for generating fear. And we started that on our own, but uh, we've since entered into collaboration with the uh, Israeli Paratroopers Brigade, and we now collect body odor from every first-time jumper. So um, we we went that path because we, like everybody else in this field, you know, the, the holy grail there is is finding the molecules, right? I mean, if you'll have the fear molecules, that's a bonanza, right? Because I mean, you know, you could think of many reasons why it would be a bonanza, but for, for me, you know, if, if you find the molecules, you, you can then try and find the receptors. And when you find the cognate receptors, you can then develop blockers. And you can Im- imagine, you know, uh, um, uh, um, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, I'm switching into Hebrew. It's about midnight now, right? I'm, I'm sorry, it's two in the morning. You're yeah. doing incredibly well, considering the inversion of the circadian clock, we would it's, never know. <laughs> Yeah, um, no one uh, traveled
0: in today from Israel. So he's a, he's a circadian inverted, <laughs> as we say.
1: Uh, um, anxiety. So, so uh, y- you can imagine developing like a nasal spray against anxiety, right? Where, where you would quell those receptors and kill the fear response, right? Which rather than going the current path, which is through neurotransmitters that then have effects all over the place, you would be getting fear at its source, right? So, so that would be why I would want that. And 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 we figure out that doing that, you know, collecting fear from like three, four, or five people um, in an experiment, you'll never be able to do analytical chemistry on that. So we now have a, we we have a, a setting we call Fear Bank, uh, which now has more than a thousand samples in it. So we're we're trying to do uh, uh, analytics on that. But but in doing that, we've we've joined you know the the crowd. Everybody's doing fear, and everybody's doing sweat. And in one of our discussions in lab, you know, we were saying, well, there's gotta be, you know, or there potentially definitely could be additional bodily media that are are playing into social chemosignaling. signaling. Uh, now, many of these, you know, you can't really study, right? I mean, so you know, just to throw right, most terrestrial mammals communicate social information through urine. Um, but you know, starting doing experiments with humans with smelling urine, it would be difficult. You know, both in IRB and in agreement, and you know, and and then we 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 and, you know this is a rare case where we actually hypothesized what we set out to do, and you know, and then only claim in retrospect that it was hypothesis. Uh, is is tears? Um, we 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 started thinking about tears and looking into tears because tears are a bodily liquid, emotional tears, that that we emit. In emotional situations, where where these are situations where nonverbal communication is is critical and key, and and tears are a liquid that that is puzzling beyond ocular maintenance, right? And, and so so you know the the most influential text I think till this day in in, in emotion research is is Darwin's book. Uh, uh, the Showing of the Emotions in Men and Animals, I think is the full name of the book. And an entire chapter, chapter six, is devoted to tears. An entire chapter of this book. Why? With, with no conclusion. Why? Because the book revolves around describing the functional antecedents of emotional expressions. So, for example, uh, showing of the teeth is a sign of aggression. Right, so so animals first bit with their teeth, and and Darwin argued that through evolution, uh, just uh, showing the teeth alone became an aggressive sign because it started from biting. Or what I I find is a, is a beautiful example, and this is work partly done by by Adam Anderson now at Cornell, um, is is the uh, emotional expression of disgust. So disgust, which comes from the Latin disgustus,ia distaste, right, is spitting something out of your mouth. Now, what what Adam showed is, is that the musculature patterns of activation and the temporal sequence of activation, when you experience moral disgust, are the same as when you spit a bitter taste out of your mouth, right? So again, so there's a functional antecedent spitting something out. And through evolution, the argument was that it became an expression of emotion and you express disgust just as if you're spitting something out of your mouth, even though there, you know, in the case of moral disgust, there's nothing you're spitting out of your mouth. So, so Darn systematically went through the expressions of emotions and for each one went to their functional antecedent and explained everything very nicely. And then he got stuck with tears, right? Because tears are an obvious emotional expression and he could not find a functional uh, antecedent. So he ended up saying, this is an epic phenomenon, basically, right? I, I don't know. I, what, what all yeah. scientists do when they don't have a good explanation. <laughs> Blame it on nature. Right, right. So, so and, and, but he bothered to write this entire chapter on, on, on the ocular sort of maintenance, you know, function of tears and so on and so forth, but but nothing emotional. So we thought, well, maybe the function is, is a chemical signal. And, and you know, so, so with that in mind, we, we harvested emotional tears, uh, which was also an amusing event on its own, right? Because we we uh, we, uh, we we posted um, messages on all sorts of boards that that uh, we're seeking um, experiment participants who cry with ease. Now this generated an unfortunate gender bias in our study, right? Because we received about a hundred women volunteers and about one man. And, you know, I think this is not a problem only in in macho Israel, right? Probably anywhere in the West, this would, be, I mean, definitely in America it would be the same, I think. You My know. guess is that
0: there are probably men out there who cry easily, emotional tears easily. Oh, I'm sure. But they're not going to show up. Yeah, yeah, right? that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. a
1: cultural thing. It's not, you know, you're not going to come to a lab and say, you know, I cry all the time. It's just not going to happen. Uh, and then um, we, we what we did is uh, for each one of these participants, you know, we would ask them, you know is there a particular film event that you know of that you know a scene that that makes you cry and and interestingly in these effective criers, there's always oh yes you know the scene in in so and so i always cry profusely from that you know they they have Can you their, give me an
0: example of a, one of the more commonly named yeah, scenes
1: yeah yeah with these um mm. the movie the champ mm. the champ dies that. he's a boxer and he dies and it, literally in the hands of his about eight-year-old son and his son is standing next to his bed and you know saying champ champ and and he dies right right. (laughs) it's a winner okay
0: waterfalls yeah yeah got it
1: so you know we're probably the neurobiology lab with most sad movie Films on the shelf in the world, right? We have a whole huge collection. <laughs> there is such and, a thing as tears of joy, and, by the way. <laughs> n- so no, <laughs> no. Well, uh, we're going ahead of ourselves, but sure. like I say we tried to collect them and failed. Um, even people who think they shed tears of joy and laughter, their eyes water a bit, but it's not the same thing. Ah. In 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 the effective criers, we end up screening. So uh, you know, we collect a full mL of tears. A full mL of tears in about fifteen minutes. Wow! So, so that's pouring, right? Yeah. And that doesn't happen from laughter, that we or we've never Correct. seen that. We've never seen that happen from laughter. We tried. Um, so, so, um, so we have we have all these sad films. And by the way, the, one of the amusing things is uh, when we ultimately published this paper in in Science, um, we were forced, in retrospect, to go out and actually buy the films. Right. I mean, you know, originally we like downloaded them here we and there, but you can't because you're you'd be violating uh uh you know uh copyright, copyright laws. Right. So we had to buy, like purchase all these films that like the participants and watch saw. them. So, so we, we actually have these in lab, like DVDs, you know, that we actually purchased. Um but so so nice um, coverage of potential legal fallout there No, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. No, 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 we did. We believe no, you, I believe, really you. I believe yeah, you. It was that uh I believe so, you. <laughs> So, uh, we, and, and, yeah, and, and, well, we can touch on that later. But, but uh, so, so, um, we co- so most of these uh, uh, volunteers who, who come saying they can cry with ease actually don't meet the bill. Um, and so out of the about 100 at least more women that we screened, we ended up uh, with about six who, who could really come to lab week after week and pour tears.
0: There's a name for this in psychiatry they call it um, a narrative distancing some people when they watch a film where someone's getting hit they 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 flinch quite a lot they it's almost as if they're experiencing it, it but it works in the opposite direction too I know someone like this um, okay. where if they watch a film that someone's experiencing something even mildly positive that their mood elevates so they they can quickly bridge, yeah, um, and and it's not always adaptive, as you can imagine. So there's l- lack of narrative distancing, right? Yeah.
1: What well, one you know issue you can bring up with this entire line of studies in our lab is is I don't know if there's something very unique about mm-hmm. the donors, right? I mean, we're assuming these are tiers. and no, this a- is
0: pretty common. I think that the numbers I saw uh, out there about five to eight percent. It's exactly what we yeah. got
1: about right in about six hundred. Okay. So, so, so we collected. Um, um tears and and we exposed uh, participants uh to these tears and and we found a few things first of all, the tears are completely odorless you cannot detect them at all completely odorless um and yet when you sniff them, you have a pronounced uh reduction in testosterone uh within about 20 minutes half an hour
0: this is men and women smelling men. women's tears just men, men yeah. smelling
1: women's tears but yeah. not perceiving any odor nothing just sniffing them and you have uh about a 14 percent drop in free testosterone free
0: okay so this is testosterone that's already been liberated from the testes free testosterone. that we've done a few hormones that's uh either bound or unbound uh, is yeah. unbound excuse yeah. me um, from sex hormone binding, globulin, et cetera. And it's the active form. So it's, it's, uh, it's subject to very short timescale changes. Yeah.
1: And, and this is, you know, people who, who study testosterone, which is not me, but they tell me this is a really strong effect. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to even pharmacologically get an effect like that that fast. I mean, yeah. no one in pharmacology. Yeah, years ago, uh, I spent time
0: studying endocrine effects of this sort. Um, and that's a, a tremendously sized right. effect.
1: So and so here I'll point out in passing uh, that uh, one of the concerns we had because of the uh, effort to run this study is that nobody would ever try to replicate it and to our joy, about two years later, an independent group from uh, uh, South Korea, uh, Oit al who I don't know at all, uh, replicated the testosterone effect to a T I mean like same numbers so so. Um, it lowers testosterone and, and and we then also looked uh using mr at the at the uh um effect on brain activity and saw pronounced uh if effect on activity a dampening a lowering of activity uh under under uh an arousing state a lowering of activity uh, both in the hypothalamus um and in the fusiform gyrus for whatever reason, Face I don't know. recognition area. Uh, amongst other things, yes. Um, and we don't know why, um, but pronounced. Um, and currently, Shania um, Gron in our lab is replicating this again, and this time uh, with a stronger behavioral component. Um, and I can share with you uh, unpublished uh, data now under review um, that's, as you would expect, given the effect on testosterone, perhaps, uh, sniffing tears lowers aggression in men. Uh, using, again, the TAP, the same experiment used by Eva in, in the uh, hexadecanal experiment. Gonna
0: th- the TAP, so, the, I'm going to think of that as the, the sadist, the... Sad, the
1: titration, yeah. the sadist titration. Yeah, yeah, the Tyler labors. aggression paradigm. So Not so, unlike um, the
0: Milgram experiments of the of the 1950s, which post... Um, this is looking at sort of uh, post-Holocaust behavior. Right. It, it, you know, people basically... To- in American laboratories, thinking they were torturing other people, yeah, simply because they were told to, and a lot of people did that, even though most people would report that they would never torture somebody. Yeah, else. yeah, no, yeah. humans
1: are not a wonderful species. <laughs> no.
0: Or as we could say, I think it was the <laughs> the, the great Carl Jung that said, um, "We have all things inside of us, but um, uh, the the goal is not to experience them all." Certainly, um, it's an so, incredible study, and it points again to the 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 power of of. Um, these chemosensory systems and, and pathways, and uh, obviously, there's so much here.
1: Um, at- I don't know if you want me to to tell about this or not, and I guess you can edit it out please if you don't. But uh, please, this is just you know sharing stories about the politics of science, and and so, so whereas the effect on testosterone was was uh, replicated by by an independent group. Um, in the original study in, in science where we had, we, it had three components. One was the effect on testosterone, which was robust. The second, which was brain activity, which was robust. And there was a significant but weaker effect on behavior. And I don't think we studied the right behavior in retrospect. What we looked at then was uh, ratings of arousal associated with pictures. And there, there was an effect, it was significant, but it was it was not what carried the story. Um, now there's a lab in Holland um, of a guy by the name of Ving- I'm probably mispronouncing this, but I think it's Vingerhoets for the non Dutch. Yeah, Dutch
0: names are always a little bit of a challenge. But
1: and uh, I shouldn't say that being an Israeli, I shouldn't go too much on that line. But but. Uh, that lab really didn't like our original tear story. And the reason they didn't like it is because they've, they've built a career uh, on this notion, um, including a book with this title that emotional tears are uniquely human. Now, here I should, well, I should share. So one, one of the things we really liked about that, the, the uh, tear result is that partially before we did our work, but more afterwards, and and we like that because usually things, so usually in our chemo signaling work, like what I told you before about the Bruce effect, we look at what happens in rodents and we see if the same thing is happening in humans. This was a rare case where after we did this work, um, more or less identical effects were discovered in rodents. So uh, a paper published in Nature two years later found that mouse tears, uh, mouse pup tears, Lower aggression in in um, male adult mice towards them in a and, in a smell dependent way. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So and 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 they also actually found the actual component in tears that so the tear pheromone that lowers aggression, right? So so you know this has us thinking of aggre- as tears as tears is as you can think of tears as like a, a chemical blanket in a way that that you're covering yourself up again with you know to protect against aggression, right? And. And so our finding, you know, which to me, I mean this is consistent with how I think about behavior in general, I, you know, I don't think, you know, beyond language there are very few things, definitely sensory things that are uniquely human. You know, I, I I I'd be hard pressed. But so so you know, our finding went against, you know, against their their story, right? Because, you know, here we're saying no, you know, tears are this chemo signaling mechanism like all animals. And by the way, I you know just after this entire debate, about uh, um, six months ago, there was a paper in current biology that dogs emit emotional tears and and it was uh, the dogs emit emotional tears when they reunite with their owners. Mm-hmm. And you were talking before about about um, oxytocin. So I think what they showed there is that not only that, but that the 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 view of seeing the tears in the dog. Influences oxytocin in, in the humans. I I, absolutely, I hope they, I'm getting this right. No, but I
0: absolutely believe this. I mean, I from yeah. the from the time I brought Costello home at eight weeks old.
1: Costello's your dog. He right? my dog. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. He passed away, but had him a long uh, time.
0: Actually, the only time I can recall crying. I, listen, I, I've certainly cried before uh, many times in my life. Um, many many times. Um, the only time I ever recall. Crying to the point where I wasn't sure that I could keep producing two years, but somehow <laughs> it is when I had to put him down. Uh, right? Is just like, you know, and if I talk about too long no, now, I'll start crying. Up, to, yeah. You know, it's one of those things. And yeah. I think, yeah. A, I think it's a healthy yeah, a, yeah, emotional yeah, for sure, state. for sure. But I recall when he was a puppy thinking this oxytocin thing must be real because I can recall being in faculty meetings, which, you know, fairly, fairly stated are not always that interesting, but they could be pretty interesting. And someone presenting data in my mind thinking, I hope Costello's okay. What's he doing down in my office? This is when he was very little. And also not needing to eat, not being able to focus on anything else <laughs> except my attachment to him for about the first 2 or 3 weeks that I had him. Then it was easy. Then I could focus off on other things. And I think it, I think that dogs perhaps through oxytocin hijack the circuitry that's intended <laughs> for child rearing. Yeah. I really do. Otherwise, why would people be so ridiculously attached to their dogs? I mean, hence all the the posts of everyone thinks their dog is the cutest dog, the Mm. same way everyone thinks their children are the cutest children.
1: You know, Costello, by the way, was a very handsome bulldog. (laughs) 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 So, so, so yeah, so, so, so again, so there, so even, you know, to put another nail in that story of, of, uh, of tears are uniquely human. So they're not dogs shed emotional tears. Um, and, and, and so that group really didn't like this and they went ahead and, and, Tried to replicate, and to your listeners, I'm showing double uh, quotations mm. on the replicate. Uh, only the behavioral part, the ratings of arousal mm. um, uh, in women, of women, uh, and and failed to replicate that. I see. Now, th- this was you know just sharing on how science works and doesn't work in my in, in my notion in this case. So, at the time. Um, after they got this accepted in some journal, um, uh, not a field journal, in the Journal of Memory of something, um, they contacted me for a, a response, and I I uh, wrote to the authors and I said, "Look, you know, uh, this is very odd to me. Why don't you come? You know, why don't we replicate this again together and see if it doesn't work? If it doesn't work, I'll publish it with you that it doesn't work, but you know." Um, and so I said, why don't you send over a graduate student or the lead author and we'll do it here and we'll show them how it's done because they, they did it very wrongly in the paper. Um, and so they replied that, uh, no, they don't have money to send over a graduate student to do it. So I replied saying, okay, I'll fund the graduate student coming over and I'll fund the entire study and their stay and so on and so forth. And let's do this together. And they replied, no, they're not willing to, to do that. Which you know I don't think is the way things should work, um, and and they published this sort of failed uh, uh, behavioral effect in in that paper. Um, so I'm just sharing this, you know, that it's not only there, there was that successful replication with uh, the effect on testosterone, but there was supposedly this failed replication on the effect in in behavior. Um, and then I published a, a rebuttal on on that, which I don't know if I should have done, but I did.
0: Well, I think uh, it's it's interesting. I mean. I, be, I think um provided studies are done correctly, I mean the the positive result um almost always trumps the the negative result. And yet I think replication is key. The problem, as you pointed out, is that replication is rarely pure replication of the yeah, exact yeah, this study. One, this
1: one's not um, even remotely, but it and I, I published the detailed, So actually they hid something in their data that did partially work. So I, I asked for their data and I reanalyzed it and that's what I published in the rebuttal. But you know, this is just sharing on, on how science works. I, I took advice. So I'm it's not that that uh, I'm friends with him, but at that, that time I was communicating a bit because we were on some board with with uh, with uh, Daniel Kahneman, who's mm. who's Nobel laureate. Thinking fast
0: and slow, right?
1: And so so uh, I asked him how how should I deal with this? You know, give me some advice here. I, I was really you know it, it, it was an emotionally not fun to be in that position, and he said don't 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 n- never publish a rebuttal. Don't do anything. And I was, you know, how can I, you know, I have to do something. He said, no, don't. Because once you do that, then, you know, people don't go into the details. They won't read the details of your rebuttal. They'll be like, well, there's a group that says this and there's a group that says that. So it's unclear.
0: Well, and yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate that you're bringing it up today and I, I do appreciate that you published the rebuttal and that you offered in a very magnanimous so, way to, to do a collaboration. That's what he then
1: said. That's, so, 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 so common's advice after that was that, well, if you insist then just publish, r- write a response that you offered them to, to come do it together. They refused, and there's nothing you can do about that. It's a lot like um, <laughs> fight sports, right? People talk a lot of trash. <laughs> Although
0: in science, you know, I will say this, you know, as long as we're on the, the sociology of science, the science, stakes is very are lower. <laughs> science is very different than podcasting or social media or... Uh, other fields, because in science, people it's generally are very kind to your face, and then they you get it in the you get it in the neck on grant reviews or yep. anonymous reviews. Yep. Um, I was on a grants review panel this morning. I'm a nice reviewer, meaning I judge things objectively, but I I try to always um, think from the perspective of the graduate student or author of the of the proposal. Listen, I th- I think that um, science is a is a game of of uh, people who most of them are seeking facts, however the the ego is strongly woven into it like any like anything else so i think it was uh very magnanimous of you to offer the collaboration so i'm going to tell this lab whose name i can't pronounce um please accept the collaboration then we can invite everyone on here for a round table um i appreciate that you shared that story and i know a number of other people will um for a number of reasons i have a couple more questions um and i realize and thank you by the way for your uh for your willingness and stamina because it is probably 1 a.m. Israel time now um, and you just arrived. Later, but, I think. Um, but you're doing uh, terrifically well. So I, I um, if you'll indulge us just a, a touch further, there are two topics that um, I want to touch on and if you want to cover these in shorter thrift, that's fine, although don't feel any obligation to. Um, the first one is I think most people are familiar with the scent of food or foods as a signal of the nutrient contents of those foods. Um, you know, an orange that smells great or the smell of something baking, you know, it, didn't, it it suggests something about the the contents and quality of that food. After all, you and I both separately lived in the same apartment in Berkeley above the cheese board, which That's the crazy. smell of <laughs> cheese <laughs> wafting up through the cheese board yeah, is something yeah. I will never forget. Yeah, and the yeah. breads, never forget it. Um, amazing
1: uh, bread. Yeah, I and- mean, I, I don't know if you've conveyed that clearly enough to listeners or watchers Now the probability that we really is, is... just discovered that we lived in the same we exactly. never met i mean a fit like this before yep and we lived in the same exactly apartment. Are, what, are we our, click friends in a lingering way i guess absolutely through the through the, the uh, through the uh Floorboards. it had a great floor that place it had a great wooden floor yeah, it was an
0: amazing place i lived there with my girlfriend for a year and a half and then uh <laughs> it was a, yeah. an amazing place um we won't give out the address yeah. for, out of respect for the people that live there now. Um, <laughs> but do check out the cheese board if you're ever in Berkeley. Their hours are weird, but, uh, so you have to look online, but they're, it's a unique place with, yeah. with great bread and cheese and um, some good flavors of pizza. Um, in any case, um, I'm wondering whether or not smell can signal things about the nutrient contents of foods in a way that's divorced from the smell that we are perceiving. So for instance, I could imagine, based on what you've told us about smell today, that, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, 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 I smell a, a, a piece of meat cooking and it smells great to me. And I think of it as, oh, that's so savory and my mouth is watering and I, I love the smell of this. And I'm thinking, okay, this is protein and fat and I love the taste of steak and a little bit of char, but that nature has co-opted that to, Get, ensure, or I should say, increase the likelihood that I will ingest some other thing that's in stake for, that has no odor, but whose nutrient content is very important to me. For instance, amino acids, right? Right. I mean, uh, amino acids are essential to life. And yet um, we don't go around sniffing for amino acids. We go around sniffing for savoriness, umami type uh, uh, tastes and, and things of that sort. So um, I could imagine a million different examples of this in the same way i could imagine that the scent of somebody that we fall in love with or become romantically attached to or you know sexually attracted to is signaling all sorts of things about sure the potential for offspring of a particular immune status that's a long term game but also um, something about um uh, pleasure and safety of a potential interaction so what i'm asking here is about that whether or not there are subconscious signals that the um olfactory system has uh, learn to seek, but learn to seek through um, more overt signals, sort of the, the tip of the iceberg phenomenon.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I don't have a good answer for you, although I think it's a really good question um, or, or, or a good idea, in fact. So so whether, whether the, there's, you know, odor cues on nutrient value is a really good idea. Moreover, it's, probably good to the extent that somebody probably did it and I should know and don't. Um, we haven't done anything on that line. So I don't know. I don't know if if the nutrient value of food is systematically encoded in odor. Um, if that's not been done, and I will check after our uh, 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 meeting today, then it should be. That's um, a really good idea.
0: I mean, one of the reasons I ask this is because, um, you know, the obesity crisis in the U.S. is a huge issue and elsewhere. And highly processed foods, um, you know, have a lot of things that are problematic. But one of the things that they don't have uh, often is a direct relationship between the scent, the taste, and the the nutrient content. And I don't mean macronutrients sugar, fat, uh, excuse me, uh, carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. But the the vitamins and micronutrients, things that support the microbiome, whereas foods that are not highly processed, for instance, meat or a piece of fruit, um, contain many micronutrients that are vital to aspects of our biology. But we don't go around sniffing for probiotics.
1: I'll tell you one sort of factoid that may support your hypothesis here. And that is that there appears to be potential olfactory perceptual similarity in metabolic products, so something that's metabolized from something else has perceptual similarity across those those two things. So 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 metabolic cascades play into the coding of olfactory space, and and that is consistent with the direction you're you're, you're implying. But again, I don't I don't know of a direct test of of uh, of nutritional value in smell, and and again, the fact that I don't know doesn't mean, of course, that it doesn't exist. And in this case, I would suspect that it should exist um, in scientific press, and, and if not there, then with the companies that have vested interest in this, which are many. Um, uh, briefly, share, just just please an, an amusing anecdote to share with you is that we've received two independent. Um, um people you know uh, companies who have turned to our lab recently uh asking for help uh to to bring odor to engineered meat right that's a growing thing and all these you know meats that are not
0: you had to bring it up this uh, this audience (laughs) is going to be very polarized (laughs) along the along the lines of engineered meat um you're not you're not you're not promoting oh
1: no 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 no, no. i I'm, i'm agnostic but but uh But we've had two companies turn to us and say, look, you know, we have this great product, but it just doesn't smell like meat. So help us make it smell like meat. Interesting. Uh, The reason it's so polarizing is that anything related to
0: nutrition on social media is a total barbed wire topic. We've had experts on nutrition come on here. We'll have more, but Uh, I I know nothing about nutrition. You're you're safe. No, don't worry. (laughs) No, is not, and is not promoting this he hasn't even said whether or not he's going to help them out. No,
1: Um, we're not actually not, not because yeah, it just never, it didn't happen. No,
0: the, 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 whether or not those um, engineered meats are, uh, Yum, yuck, or meh is is a personal issue to people in terms of taste. Whether or not they are better for neutral or worse for you and the planet than given the ingredients that are required, that's a, a whole world we'll avoid now. I, I will, <laughs>
1: but t- you know, I'll take that the opportunity to, to to highlight something related, maybe because on on what were you saying on the on the scale. You know, there's this. You know, I'll take the opportunity to dispel another misconception about olfaction, right? There's this common notion that our sense of smell um, is incredibly subjective, right? And that what you might like in a smell, I will not like in a smell, and that we all have our own, you know, totally subjective world of olfaction.
0: I think I know the study you're going to tell me. There you. are many. The cross-cultural similarities. There
1: are many. That, that is utterly untrue. Many, not only from my lab, there are many from many labs.
0: Uh, please clarify for those that don't yes. follow this literature.
1: So, so um, yeah, so, so humans are incredibly similar to one another in their olfactory perception. And this is in contrast to what most people think. So why, why is there this misconception? The misconception is there for two reasons. First of all, or for several reasons, but two are stand out. First of all, we're, we're attracted by outliers because, you know, I'll tell somebody, look, you know, for example, olfactory pleasantness is highly correlated amongst humans. And let's first put this in numbers. You'll take a, a bunch of humans and a bunch of odorants and have them rate pleasantness. The correlation across uh, the humans will be about 0. 0.8. That's incredibly high, incredibly high. What do you okay? think is
0: pleasant, I think is pleasant. Yeah,
1: yeah. Now, why does why that go against, culturally people think, for two reasons. First of all, we're, we're attracted or, or biased by outliers, but that's particularly, that shows in fact the result. What do I mean? So you'll tell somebody, look, people are very similar in their pleasantness estimates, and they'll say, oh, you know, that can't be. I love cilantro, and you know, my girlfriend hates the smell of cilantro, right? Or, and there are a few classic examples there, Guyava, right, you know, is another uh, uh, polarizing odor. So there are a few polarizing odors right? And, and that's true, right? So that's true that, you know, half of the population loves the smell of cilantro and half hates it. Half loves guava, half hates it. That's true. Microwave pop- popcorn. However, I assure you that, you know, you can come to our lab. We have about a thousand odorants in our lab, okay? We won't smell the thousand, right? But I assure you, you know, take a hundred odorants, okay, from our mixtures and labs, right? And we'll, we'll smell them, right? And out of the 100 odors, 90 will totally agree on, right? And including universe, I mean, you know, nobody will say they like the smell of feces or fecal smells, and everybody will say they like the smell of rose and flowery smells. There will be rare, rare exceptions. Again, the correlation is about 0.8 across individuals. So on 90 of 100 will really be in high agreement then five orderants will be in sort of intermediate agreement. And yes, there'll be the five orderants that we're in total disagreement on. But I asked you, you know, if we agree on 95 and disagree on five, are we the same or are we different? We're the same. They're just outliers to this to this rule. And, and, and so one reason is this issue of, of outliers attract how we think about things, but no, we're actually much more similar than, than what we think. And the second thing that, that drives this cultural effect is the is our poor application of language to olfaction right so so in other sensory systems we grow up with we 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 develop with anchors right so since you're a little kid you know your mother shows you a cow and says what does a cow do moo right and we all know moo moo and what color is this it's well this is kind of an odd black but it's black right or, or what color is that it's red right So you have these anchors, but as you all know, you know, the red that I'm seeing is not necessarily the red that you're seeing. We just both know to call that red. And since you say red and I say red, I think, why, we're seeing the same thing. But no, we're not seeing the same thing, right? And in in odor, we don't have those anchors, right? We we don't from childhood, you know, our mom doesn't tell us, so what's this smell and what's that smell, right? And so we don't have these language anchors that make us think that we're perceiving the same thing. Now, how can you quantify that? The most important term in in measuring sensory systems is similarity, right? That's the measure, right? So what can you do? Let's say we take 10 odorants and I have you rate all the pairwise similarities, right? So you'd end up with 45 numbers, right? So, you know, how similar is one to two, one to three, one to four, and then two, and all the possible pairwise similarities. Let's say you rate similarity from one, which is totally dissimilar to 100, exactly the same right? So now I have a similarity matrix that describes Andrew's perception of smell, right? I have, you know, based on these 10 odorants that I selected. Now I can run my similarity matrix and then I can see if the similarity matrix are correlated, right? And then we've gotten rid of the issue of names and odors, right? It doesn't matter if I'll call this lemon and this orange and you call this sweet potato and this marshmallow, right? It doesn't matter. If I think that these two are highly similar, And you agree. And I think that these two are very different. And you agree, right? We perceive the world in the same way if our similarity matrices are aligned, right? And what's nice about that is that then you can do that for vision audition and olfaction in a common group. And you can see where we're more alike each other or not. And we've done that for color vision, olfaction, and tonal audition, okay? And we are most dissimilar in color vision, okay? In color vision, the variance is about 100%. Amazing. That's quite different. And there's tons of literature on this. Tons of it. Tons of it. Right? And in olfaction and audition, they're about the same. So we're not different. We're very similar. We're just very poor at appreciating this. And, And mind you, not that there's not variability. There is variability. And of course, the system is malleable. As all sensory systems are, so you can learn to like an odor and, and that will change you and learn to dislike an odor, right? But just the way you can learn to like a sound or dislike a sound. So, you know, this doesn't take away from the hardwired link of a structure to its perception that you can that they're malleable. And 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 we're we're not very variable. We're we're actually kind of similar.
0: That's a perfect segue to the question I have next, which is if in general people perceive certain odors similarly, you could imagine that odors could be um, manufactured, co-opted, et cetera, in order to elicit richer sensory experiences and drive choice-making. Yeah. Um, That's obvious at the level of the smell of a hot dog stand or freshly baked bread, et cetera. But what I'm talking about here and I'd like to ask you about is doing this at scale and uh scientists, geeks like to say, in silico, in, uh, through computers. So, for a long time now, there's been this idea that um, there will soon be Google smell. Not to call out Google is the only search engine, but <laughs> Duck Duck Go smell, for those of you that don't yeah. want to hear smell. Chat uh, GPT. You're, 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 uh, chat GPT, yeah. and on and on. Yeah. In other words, you know, vision, visual cu- information is sent through uh, computer interfaces, as right. is auditory information not so much haptic somatosensory, although it can, you know, we, our lab uses VR. It's, a, it, it can be done. Right. Um, but it hasn't really taken hold. Um, however, smell being such a rich source of behavioral and hormonal and other sorts of deep, deep information mm-hmm. that can drive people in to yum, yuck or meh type decision-making, yeah. uh, seems like an amazing candidate. So what is your experience with Um, generating smells in silico, in computers. And here, folks, for those of you that aren't catching on to this, and and I don't expect that everyone would, because what we're really alluding to here um, is the idea that you'll look at, you'll uh, put into a search engine um, uh, blueberry pancakes recipe, and that not only will you get photos of those blueberry pancakes and a recipe, but you will get the, hopefully, validated odor of those pancakes and that recipe coming at you in real time through the computer?
1: So I'll start off answering from, uh, from the, uh, the name you threw out there, Google. So about uh, probably about five years ago, uh, Google had an April fool's spoof. Oh, right. And they put out this video of Google smell. Okay. And, and it had all these like classic, like, sales images of you know holding up your phone to a rose and it generating rose and 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 all these things right Mm -hmm. so google is now trying to do that um and they just they just uh, uh published i mean i i know they've been trying to do it for a while they visited our lab uh but they just sort of went public with this that really just like about a a month ago or something that that um, they have this offshoot startup. Um, I think it's called Osmo or something like that. That started off with a ridiculous sum of money for a startup, like I don't know, tons of money. A lot.
0: There's a lot of money in that world. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: in Google. Yeah, um, to to um, you know to digitize uh, smell, and and um, and there are other companies that are trying to do this as well. Um, and we've been talking now for quite a while about our, our lab's chemo signaling work, but actually half of our lab is devoted to this question of, of uh, ultimately digitizing smell. Um, and and so, so this is a very, very active field of research. And, and, and I'll say um, one thing that, that dovetails with what you were talking about before. Um, in many ways, COVID, is going to be one of the best things that ever happened to olfaction research. Because suddenly all the world um, is, or all the world, lots of people are are, um, very cognizant of the importance of smell. And smell is like way up there in people's awareness because of COVID. And this is driving a renaissance of of olfaction research. And and awareness to olfaction is something that's worth paying attention to. and, and our lab has been involved in this way, in this effort for a long time, where, where the initial part of this effort is, in fact, to develop a set of rules that link odor structure to odor perception. That is, the, the going thing was that, that until recently, at least, there was no scientist or perfumer for that matter who could look at the structure of a novel molecular mixture and predict for you how it will smell or smell something and tell you what it molecular structure could or should be um, you know, so in, in contrast, let's say to trivial, like color vision, let's say, so, you know, if, if, if you know what the wavelength of the light is, you more or less know what perceived color it's going to be. Of course, there are exceptions to that and, 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 all sorts of issues, but as a rule, you, you would know, or, you know, or the other way around, you know, you can generate a wavelength and you would know what color light, uh, it's going to be perceived. Um, so, so that's an example of where, the rules linking structure in this case, measured by wavelength and perception in this case, experienced this color, the rules are well known. In olfaction, we didn't have that um, until recently. Um, but over the past few years, a bunch of labs have really um, uh, pushed this forward. Uh, there's a bunch of work uh, out of Leslie Voshall's lab at Rockefeller and Andreas Keller working with Leslie, um, uh, who, who've done a lot of work on this front. Um, also worked from Joel Mainland's lab, lab uh, at Monell um, and fair discovery, Joel was a, a graduate student in our lab. Um, and and recently in our lab, we've had, and, and I hope this doesn't come across as overly arrogant, but we, we've we had a sort of mini breakthrough on this front. To call something a mini breakthrough is far from arrogant. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and this is a paper uh, led by Aaron Ravia, uh, Uh, from our lab and Kobe Snitz, also a major contributor there, a paper published in Nature uh, about a year and a half ago in the height of a COVID pandemic. So nobody really, or I won't say nobody, but it it wasn't noticed in the way it otherwise would have been. It was was published in Nature really on like a week where the whole world was like going berserk over COVID. Um, And in this paper, we develop an algorithmic framework uh, where we can... Predict the perceptual similarity of any two molecular mixtures with very very high accuracy so if you give me two molecular mixtures I can predict how similar you, you will smell them to be mm. okay now not only could we predict that but we could design it so we can generate um, uh, mixtures with known similarities and the 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 result was highlighted, and and you'll appreciate this coming from vision, um, is that using our algorithmic solution, we generated olfactory metamers. So we measured mixtures completely non-overlapping in their molecular structure, but they smell exactly the same. Okay. Now, if you would come to a classic perfumer or most classic perfumers and tell them that you can generate two mixtures with zero molecules in common, but smell exactly the same, they would tell you no. <laughs> and yet, we did and, and anybody can recreate them. This is simple, actually. Um, and, and in the paper, we do a few things like we generate a metamer for uh, Chanel number no. five. So you don't like perfume. So this one but but we we, we take so we generate a Chanel number no. five with no component from Chanel number no. five in it. Okay. Um, and we actually have a, a publicly available website i'll give it to you for your links if you want that anybody can do this we built an, an engine that you can generate these these metamers now once we did that in a way we've generated the, the 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 infrastructure for digitizing smell because what again what we what our what our algorithm predicts our our framework predicts is similarity but in a way that's enough for you why is that enough we have a map of uh, four thousand uh, molecules uh, for each one we know there are perceived smell. Now you can make up any mixture you want for me. I can project it into that map and measure its pairwise distance from all the points in the map. If it falls on lemon, then what you generated smells like lemon and if it falls you know on tomato, then what you generated smells like tomato so we we now solve that problem we can predict the odor of any molecular mixture. We can say how it's going to smell. What we can do is then find a set of components, which we call odor primaries, that can be used to mix any odor that you can perceive. And that's what we're working on now. Um, and about a month ago, uh, so this is in collaboration with a lab of a Jonathan Williams and Max Planck in Munich. Um, Jonathan Williams is an uh, atmospheric chemist, uh, but he's really good at at using GCMS, these tools that measure molecules. So uh, Jonathan Williams measured odorants in Germany, uh, transmitted the information to us over IP. Uh, we fed that into our algorithmic framework and recreated it from a device that mixes primaries. Uh, and we tried to do four different odorants uh, in our, our proof of concept test. Uh, one of them uh was rose and we failed at recreating rose we in fact recreated something that had a percept, but most people perceived it as bubblegum. uh the second one we tried to do was anise and we failed at recreating anise um, and most people said it was cherry which is not very far mm-hmm. but it failed uh, the third was gasoline Um, And we were slightly but significantly better than chance at recreating gasoline. Um, And the fourth was was violets. And 15 of 16 people said violets. So the first odor ever transmitted over IP is violets. And we did that last month. Um, Of course, this is not anything near a practical solution. Uh, The device uh, uh, that Jonathan was using to measure uh, is a 1.5 million dollar device bigger than this table? Uh, That's right. I remember when VCRs; half the audience
0: won't even know what that is. And VCRs <laughs> were like this big, yeah. so we're we're so, all good. Okay. I, I'm all good with the uh, with the prediction that I things will come saying, down in size and cost.
1: Yeah, I, I, I was just saying, you know, we're, don't hold your breath uh, for this to be on your table <laughs> tomorrow. Um, and and you know, again, even even you know, all we have in hand is this very initial proof of concept. You know it doesn't it's not even yet close to being a paper we are submitting because there's still lots of work to be done uh but we're on we're on the path uh we're on the path and you know google will probably beat us to it uh they got a lot no you seem pretty dogged in there yeah but they have so much more resources that uh that um at this stage and and they've already published uh, two papers from that effort that are good uh yeah you know if- they definitely have a lot of dollars and a
0: lot of people a, a lot of good uh neuroscience and other biology engineering graduate students and postdocs go yep. there but but um the real question is are they getting the best people because as you and i both know in science the oftentimes it's small groups of of the very best and most creative people that can uh out run and outgun large groups and and here i don't have anything against google by yeah, the way yeah, yeah. Um, i i use it all the time
1: I, i'm um, not a betting man but i would put my my money on google on this race but i'll give i'll try and give them a a, a run for their money there Let's you go that well, was well since i mostly just
0: want to see the problem solved regardless of who uh, gets there first what i'll say is you better get going google because Gnome's being he's uh, no, humble no, no, no. and he's dogged uh, so I don't know. um Better better get cracking. There, we just cost the weekends of, and, uh, and broke up the relationships of a bunch of scientists. I remember when I was a graduate student at Berkeley, yeah. I remember hearing there was a guy in, in our common friend, uh, Irv, uh, Irving Zucker's lab that worked 100 hours a week. So I was like, oh, I'll work 102 hours a week, which was not a good choice. In any case, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's abundantly clear that you're making progress here. And, and, oh, I, and I go to some of the earlier discussions we had, and I think we're not just talking about transferring recipes and smells uh, of, of food, uh, gasoline from the people watching the the F1 race or something, but I'm um, thinking dating apps. I'm thinking um, you, n- nowadays, everyone knows that when you travel and you want to see your family, your grandkids or kids, you better to get on FaceTime and see them or Zoom um, than to just hear their voice. Look, we're I'll, all talking I'll, about being able to smell them. I'll tell you more time.
1: than that. I'll tell you more than that. I mean, we're talking now of trying to achieve uh, the olfactory equivalent of circa 1956 black and white TV, okay, basically, right. I mean, you know, I'm not dreaming, let's say, of being able to transmit to you the difference between a Cabernet or a Merlot, right? But if I can generate something that's vaguely wine, that will be an amazing success from my perspective, right? But jump ahead in your imagination to to 4K odor transmission, then medical diagnostics is what you want to be talking about because in, in, this is this is uh, uh, over uh, extension, but you can almost say that every disease will have an odor. I mean, every disease is a specific metabolic process. Metabolic processes have metabolites. Metabolites have a smell. Olfaction, once it's digitized, and and high resolution, which again. In our hands, it's not gonna be, I mean, we're talking, you know, in my retirement, maybe I'll read about this one day if I'll still have vision. I mean, this is not close, but when when olfaction digitization is brought to the equivalent of 4K uh, uh, vision and audition that you have now, then it will be in medical diagnosis. You, you'll have, excuse me for the, uh, the imagery, but you will have an electronic nose in your bathroom. Uh, each one of us will have in the toilet and it will be doing diagnostics all the time, and and uh, that's that's where it's going to go, but again, n- not anywhere in the very close future. Well, it's it's certainly an exciting
0: proposition, and I'm delighted that you and other groups um, who are so strong are working on it. I really am. Noam, I I want to say thank you for your time today. First of all, uh, this was a Tremendously interesting conversation. I mean, we touched on so many things: hormones, smells, the architecture of the olfactory system. I know that people listening to this are realizing, but I'm going to say it anyway: uh, what an incredible gift you've given us in um, as, a, you. as a as uh, a expert in this field, giving us this tour of of the work that you and others, uh, who you credit so generously, um, have done to elucidate this incredible system that we call olfaction and chemosensation. Thanks also just for the incredibly pioneering work that you've done. You know, I, I don't have many heroes in science. I have heroes outside of science and a few in science, but I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna uh, purposely embarrass myself a little bit by saying that uh, from the time I was at Berkeley and I s- then and saw that experiment being done of people foraging, uh, falling ascent trails. And then when I was a ju- until I was a junior professor, I used that in my teaching slides um, in a class that I taught that was sort of the early origins of this podcast in many ways. And over and over again, when your laboratory publishes papers, I find like, this is super interesting, super cool. And I find myself telling everybody about it. And that's really what I do for uh, for a living is I, I learn and then I blab about it to, to the world. So thank you so much for the work that you've done and the spirit that you bring to it. Whatever drives that spirit, as the great late Ben Barris used to say, keep going because we are all benefiting tremendously. And um, and I also just want to say that, you know, for people listening to this, the the spirit of science is one of, as you mentioned, there's complex politics and all these things, but it's absolutely clear that you delight in the work you do. And um, so I delight in it. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for your time today. And so on behalf of me and, and the many, many people listening to this, I just want to extend a huge debt of gratitude. Thank you so much.
1: Oh. Uh- so i'm i'm the, uh, i'm blushing i don't know if this doesn't come across on the on the radio podcast but thank you so much for uh, very warm words i mean you know we, we as you know it, it, it when you work in your lab you, you don't there's these moments where you suddenly discover that somebody is like cares a bit about it and those are always very rewarding moments because usually you you function without that i mean i guess that's one of the things you need to be a scientist is to have the, you know, the drive to work without that because it, it comes only rarely.
0: Uh, there's immense gratitude and appreciation for you and what you do from me. And now I know from uh, a large segment of the world as well. So uh, my only request is that you come back and tell us about uh, the next results sometime not too long <laughs> from now.
1: Yeah, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to catch you live now, although you have the power to edit this. So I guess that's not fair. but. First, you come visit us in Israel and and tell us both about the science and the public science work you're doing, and then I'll come again. (laughs) Uh, A good bargain, and and I accept. (laughs) Delighted. Thank you so much. Yeah, pleasure.
0: Thank you for joining me for today's discussion about olfaction and chemosensation with Dr. Noam Sobel. If you'd like to learn more about the work in the Sobel Laboratory, or read some of the papers described during today's episode, as well as learn about the current and future projects in the Sobel Laboratory, please go to the link provided in the show note caption. If you're learning from and or enjoying this podcast, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's a terrific zero-cost way to support us. In addition, please subscribe to the podcast on both Spotify and Apple. And on both Spotify and Apple, you can leave us up to a five-star review. If you have questions for me or comments about the podcast or guests or topics that you'd like me to include in future Huberman Lab podcasts, please put those in the comment section on YouTube. I do read all the comments. Please also check out the sponsors mentioned at the beginning and throughout today's episode. That's the best way to support this podcast. Not so much on today's episode, but on many previous episodes of the Huberman Lab Podcast, we discuss supplements. While supplements aren't necessary for everybody, many people derive tremendous benefit from them for things like improving their sleep, their focus, and hormone support. The Huberman Lab Podcast is proud to have partnered with Momentous Supplements. If you'd like to see the supplements discussed on the Huberman Lab Podcast, please go to livemomentous, spelled O-U-S, so that's livemomentuscom slash Huberman. If you're not already following the Huberman Lab Podcast on social media, We are Huberman Lab on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on all those accounts, I include information, some of which overlaps with content of the Huberman Lab podcast, but often which is distinct from information covered on the Huberman Lab podcast. So again, it's Huberman Lab on all social media platforms. If you haven't already subscribed to our newsletter, we have a zero cost monthly newsletter. It's called the Neural Network Newsletter, and it includes podcast summaries and toolkits or protocols for things like enhancing sleep, for exercise, for meditation, for dopamine, for focus, and many other topics. To sign up, you simply go to HubermanLab.com, go to the menu and click on newsletter and provide your email. And I want to be clear that not only is the Neural Network newsletter zero cost, we also do not share your email with anybody. Once again, I'd like to thank you for joining me for today's discussion about olfaction and chemosensation with Dr. Noam Sobel. And last, but certainly not least, thank you for your interest in science.